I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian on late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish. I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move it, it feels just like this. Feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the donkey? Hello, cats and kittens, guys and dolls. Bonsoir, mes amis. We are here for another Thursday night episode of the debrief. It's Thursday. Which means it's a public episode, which means everybody could watch it and enjoy with no paywall. Jubilee, Jubilee, what a benefit to the masses. <laughs> I love Thursday episodes because it means most people have watched and are on the same page and have really especially interesting contributions to the hashtag discourse. And today, the subject matter is even particularly spicy because it combines some enormously tragic but very gripping public events with these recent shootings with a conversation about some of the cultural motives that we've been wrestling with with irony and some others over the past few weeks combined with this internet piece this internet piece which sometimes i think doesn't get a fair hearing because the internet video games has been the stalking horse for the right for so many years to ignore the substantive issues with guns but is there, as Irami says, a cultural problem? And is some of that culture most typified by what's going on on the internet, specifically the manosphere? I spoke this week to uh, FD Signifier. I always want to call him JD because that's the way my brain is wired. FD Signifier. He is a viral sensation on YouTube, making these long format narrative videos in the style of ContraPoints. I came across him, I don't know, probably about six months ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, and have been really enjoying his content. Um, as we talked about in the episode, there is the world of kind of black left con uh, content creators is uh, uh, in the 
lefty political space is relatively limited, and I really appreciate that he is a cultural commentator as well. I'm a little bit jealous. His uh, videos are really expansive, and I love the fact that also he has this research background from his master's studies in mass shootings. So he's also bringing an informed perspective to this entire conversation. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to play a quick clip, and then we're going to go straight to the questions okay here we go let's start with this one that i posted a little bit earlier today someone really emphasized that particular point that the difference between someone who goes on a shooter shooting spree and someone who becomes batman a cop or hasan piker is simply good looks well, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say simply, it's mm. opportunity structure. Mm. And that's like, we, we, we look at opportunity structure for a lot of social outcomes, but we don't like the opportunity structure between me and one of my cousins from a different part of town is that different part of town. It's my mother's educational background. It's the ac- it's it's my access to tutors and mentors versus his access to tutors and mentors within his neighborhood, et cetera. And so like right now, for example, I'm um uh using are you familiar with the movie Higher Learning? No. No. Is that the Michelle Pfeiffer one? No. No, no, that's uh <laughs> dangerous minds. This is John Singleton, Ice Cube, Omar Epps. Mm, mm. Anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is is lookism is one element of how opportunity structures can be stratified even among white males. And so when you when you cross that with entitlement that white men have in this country to feeling like they should have access to everything. I called it main character syndrome in the, in the video, but it's also a concept called aggrieved entitlement. Um, when you cross section that, look, I don't care what you were told when you were a kid because of these factors of your identity, your opportunity structure is not the same as Hassan Piker's. Um, that aggrieved entitlement can turn to bitterness and it can open these young men up for either radicalization or self-radicalization. All right, we've got some terms on the table. We have aggrieved entitlement. We have main character syndrome. Uh, Do these terms resonate with you guys? Men, are you okay? Talk to me. What's going on? I see some people in the chat. A little concerned that folks got in line very quickly and they think, me, I don't have a shot. I'm never going to get to talk. Why am I even in this? Don't worry. I am going to jump around the queue today. I will privilege nearer the front because I don't want to completely eliminate the reward system here for people who are, you know, acting with alacrity. But I will be hopping around. So look alive. Be alert if I come to you in the back, you know, if you stepped away to take out the dog or wash dishes or what have you, you know, I'll try to come back around to you, but you might lose your spot. So here we are. This is what we're doing. Let's start with Dylan. Dylan, tell me, are the men okay? What's on your mind this evening? Oops, sorry, Dylan, I made you a speaker. That was an accident, but go ahead and unmute yourself and speak your truth. I can. What's on your mind this evening? Hi. Um, so I'm a recent listener and just got into your podcast last month. Super awesome, by the way. Oh, welcome. Uh, definitely makes politics something fun to listen to. So, um, but this particular episode kind of piqued my interest even more and kind of hit me harder because I think 
at one point I was a victim of this whole like manosphere thing mm. back when I was younger during my undergrad days. Um, but what makes it particularly more interesting is that I'm not white. I'm a Mexican dude. Mm. So it kind of goes to show like the far reaching uh, power of these figures and of the internet in general, which um, I thank the the guest that was on today's episode to like bring light to these things. I don't really hear about it talked too much in the discourse. Yeah. So, okay. There's a lot interesting here. One, I totally agree with you about FD signifier that oftentimes you have, you have people who know about the internet and then you'll have other people who know about some of the sociological stuff. And then maybe you'll have some other people who know about race stuff, but very few people who are kind of in the mix of it all. And that's part of what I appreciate um, as an online person, but can you, would you mind, are you comfortable telling us a little bit more about your experiences uh, as a younger person? Yeah. So Hey, Dylan, also, some of the people in the chat are saying you're coming through kind of quiet. If there's any way for you to be louder, I think folks would appreciate it. Okay. Um, does this sound better, maybe? It sounds about the same to me. Are, are you on speaker or? No, I'm on uh, my phone with some headphones in. So. Okay, that's better. Whatever you just did at the very end when you said so got significantly oh, okay, louder. Cool. I'll bring it up to my mouth. Okay, uh, great. Yeah. So it's where I found myself in it was my freshman year of uh, university. Mm -hmm. I was the first one in my family to go to school, being a first generation, um, you know, a pet child of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So when I went off to university, I went straight to a four year instead of going to a two year. Um, you know, because the pressures to go to a four year, the four mm -hmm. year is kind of viewed by the immigrant family as like the golden standard of education. And the two year kind of it has like this, uh, you know, this stigma. Yeah, the stigma of being like where the slackers go, where those with no motivation go. Mm -hmm. um, so I went straight to a four-year with uh, this this image of grandeur of what university is and mm -hmm. what it could be for me. And then when I got there, uh, unfortunately, that's when kind of my fantasies were like shattered, I would say. So, How so? Um, you know, I, first of all, I didn't realize how fucking expensive it would be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that mm -hmm. was crazy. Yeah, and I paid for, you know, most of that myself through jobs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I also thought it was going to be a place where, you know, I was super excited about my my major at the time was biology. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about, you know, going to lecture and, and uh, lab and all that. But when I started going to those, I found myself not as interested as I thought I was going to be. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought it was going to be a, a place for me to... Um, you know, expand socially, but that's mm -hmm. when I kind of came to the realization that I'm not that good at making friends when I don't have other friends to act as buffers for me. Mm. Um, and then that coupled with the fact that the rest of my friends who went off to university were having really, really good times, mm. you know, meeting different people and enjoying their classes, yeah, uh, kind of led me to, you know, a pretty some serious loneliness and low self confidence and esteem. And that's when I noticed I spent much more of my time on the internet because, mm. um, you know, it was, I had nowhere else to be, obviously after class, yeah. like I didn't have friends in university. Can I ask and, you how yeah. old you are? Like what time of life, oh, like yeah. what so, years you were in college? Yeah. I'm currently 25. Okay. So, so it's fairly talking about when I was like 18 or so. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I spent a lot of the, my time on the internet and I think what I was looking for was kind of just... I don't know, I still I still wrestle with it to this day, 
but I think I was looking for something, something fulfilling, mm. you know. And what I've noticed is this was uh, around the time of the rise of like, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but you know, Dave Rubin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that was around when he started to take off. And I think the YouTube algorithm fed me one of his videos. Mm-hmm. And when I came across that video, I, I felt as if like I was in on something that no one else was in on. Mm. And that made me feel good as someone that didn't have a lot of like, um, you know, that I wasn't as sociable during that time. Mm. So it felt that, all right that, to be alone. That is that is fascinating because that is not that is an ex, uh, an aspect of hash you know quote unquote edge lord existence that kind of um, insular in group community that people talk about, but they don't specifically talk about you know people make the criticisms of, oh, they want to be subversive. They want to, you know, be counterculture and all of those kinds of things. But there's something much more innocent and just the idea of wanting to be in a space that feels insular because it's your own and it's people who it's like a chosen community. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think that's definitely how they get you. It's like the bait mm-hmm. and switch, you know, mm-hmm. um, they kind of get you with that. And then you, you, you put your guard down a little bit. Because mm-hmm. not only did I find myself in this insular community, but um, I was, you know, like anonymous. Mm. You know, I can, I can have these conversations with people and listen to these things without other people knowing about it. Because mm-hmm. uh, what a lot of people maybe don't understand is that when you start to listen and delve into these things, you kind of don't want others to know. Not mm. only because it's you know it feels good to know that you're part of something that other people don't know but it's not really uh fashionable to listen and engage in these sorts of discourses you know mm. yeah uh it makes you unlikable mm. so and i think that's where the anonymity definitely helped foster these ideas that were being fed to me so um, what kind of ideas were they you know it's uh a lot of it, as much as they, as much as they claim that they're the they're the side that is against identity politics, a lot of it is identity politics. You know, a mm. lot of focus on the race and ethnicity and whatnot. And me being a Mexican first, you know, generation, you know, child of immigrants, mm-hmm. it kind of made me question like my status and role. Because they do a really good job at framing their arguments without making it seem like an attack. Mm. And then you start to kind of think about your own person critically, but you don't really know yourself that you're thinking about it in a negative light. So you find yourself as a first-generation Mexican-American kid internalizing some aspect of the soft criticisms they were making of non-white people – immigrants latinos generally speaking yeah yeah so yeah yeah i would hear that and i'm like you know what oh that's a good point i never thought about it that way because you know i'm mexican myself so of course i wouldn't criticize my own race or whatever mm-hmm. um but that's when i would say it started you know um, so so what was your self-conception at that point uh it was honestly at that point whatever anyone was willing to tell me you know because I didn't have much of an identity um, in school. And I think in school, especially in college, that's where you get a lot of your identity, you know, mm-hmm. based on who you hang out with, 
and your interests at that time. And at that time, I was really only going to work, going to classes I didn't care about, and then hanging out on the internet. Mm. Uh, so they, unfortunately, were the first ones to get to me. Mm. So I think people are probably wondering, you know, obviously I'm curious too. I mean, what does that feel like? What does that look like? People's instinct might be to say, well, if somebody criticizes me or something about who I am or the people that I love, then it's going to turn me off of their whole project. Mm-hmm. So, but I do, I do have a sense of what you mean when you say that they are not so direct. They're not out here saying, you know, Mexicans are evil per se. I mean, some people certainly are. You know, yeah. the Buffalo shooter certainly spoke in those terms, but that's not what the, the, the first line, um, of folks say, like the entry point folks like David Rubin say, um, so how do you, you know, are you thinking, okay, well, there must be something wrong with me, or there is something wrong with the fact that my parents immigrated here, or am I not working hard enough? How did, how did you internalize that, yeah, it, and why didn't it make you maybe want to you know, reject the whole thing outright? It definitely starts that way. You, know? mm. um, you get almost like this feeling of intellectual satisfaction mm. because the, the very nature of like self-critiquing yourself, even though it's a negative self-critique, it mm. makes you feel – smart i guess Mm. you know it's like oh like i'm smart enough to know that you know that x and y even though i'm part of the x Mm -hmm. um so it is like very self-gratifying and you know almost masturbatory because it's really not doing anyone good or it's not good for anyone but your own like ego that you're kind of you're you're one of the good ones yeah there we go yeah yeah that felt good you know Uh, yeah okay so so tell me about it so what happened next did you end up going deeper into people that were a little bit more spicy than dave rubin so uh definitely you know i was a big fan of his show Mm because uh i think it was at that time refreshing to me to have someone that wasn't a liberal Mm -hmm. uh, talk to me because in my household you know uh immigrant household the thing that I always see on TV would be like CNN. Mm-hmm. So all liberal talking points and whatnot. And I was surrounded by liberal friends. And I also grew up listening to more like left lefty liberal music as well. Mm-hmm. So this was like a realm of unknown, which I think further made me want to delve deeper into it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when that happened, I started to just, you know, read the comments on videos and then, uh, you know, just go to questionable parts of the internet. And then I think where they really get you, which I think the left is doing well, is the humor, um, you know, the humor part of the indoctrination. Mm. They have a great way of making you laugh. Mm. And when you laugh, it feels good and innocent, you know? Yeah. It's like, I want to keep on laughing. I can, I can want to enjoy myself. So I'm going to keep on, uh, you know, looking at these memes and keep on reading these comments because they're funny, even though it's, yeah. like, hateful. Yeah. Did you ever talk to um, anybody from back home, whether a friend from home or family, about any of this? About what you're getting into? Uh, to be honest with you, no, because it was as much as I liked being – involved on the internet 
mm-hmm. it was still weirdly enough kind of embarrassing for me because mm. there was a there was a part of me that that knew that these ideas that they were spewing at me were wrong mm-hmm. but i guess i was just having either too good of a time laughing with them or i felt uh you know it, it was felt too self-gratifying for me to stop mm. so it was definitely a part of me that I didn't share like it eventually when I got bad um, I started incorporating the type of humor on the internet in my real life mm. and then that's when I that's kind of the wake-up call where I was like oh like I'm I've gone off the edge what happened what, was there some moment where some, some uncle or somebody was like not today junior <laughs> <laughs> no it's not so much it was not so much something like that and that would have been a lot funnier and you know probably easier for me but um i just noticed that you know that type of crass internet humor that's so famous in those recesses of the internet mm-hmm. uh, i just got to a point i guess where I, I don't know what happened i just didn't care or i just got too comfortable where i thought like oh they're gonna know that i'm joking mm-hmm. so i started joking in this way and at the beginning i did i didn't think it was hurtful at all because i kind of thought this whole like uh you know like the jester's privilege like i can say whatever i want because i'm mm-hmm. joking mm-hmm. uh but obviously that's not how the world works. Mm-hmm. That's not how humor works. So it was, I was probably doing that for like a good year, maybe saying these really stupid things, provocative things just to get a cheap laugh. And if at least one person laughed, I thought it was in the clear. Mm. Um, but yeah, it kind of, then after doing that for a while, I kind of saw how, how people would like, see me differently my friends Mm. they would be more careful to bring me around places or meet other people because they knew that i was very much into this like inflammatory type of humor and whatnot and that's kind of what made me take a step back and reassess what exactly happened to me so it wasn't any specific incident it was kind of noticing your friends treating you differently yeah yeah definitely so then, so th- sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, right. No, I was just agreeing with you. So was it cold turkey? Did you say, okay, enough of this. I'm not going to listen to this anymore. Or were you just kind of organically moving on to other pastures? Um, I honestly don't re- quite remember how it happened, but I know it wasn't, it wasn't like a next day thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of just, the same thing that led me, that led me to, like this whole like IDW nonsense mm-hmm. was the same thing that led me more to the left, which was like the curiosity. Mm. You know? mm. And then that's, that's when I got into more like uh, traditional lefty stuff, mm-hmm. which also gave me that same sort of uh, like intellectual satisfaction. And it was really mm-hmm. gratifying. And it also made me think like I was part of like this secret club, you know, because mm. no, no one in my immediate circle of friends were into that stuff. That's so interesting. I'm curious whether, as someone who's now kind of spent some time in both communities, you have any critique of the left or any advice for the left as it tries to be more appealing and push back against these sort of active recruitment efforts that are happening in the conservative sphere. Yeah, to me, that's actually one of the things I think about quite a bit, because I know for a fact that there are, you know, so many people like, like how I used to be. And I think the the main thing that I can think of is 
the the differences in aesthetic between the right and the left because mm. when i was in that position it wasn't so much like the political ideology that attracted me mm -hmm. it was the aesthetic that they were selling you know that uh we're all smart and we're also funny and we're not afraid to joke around because you know we're funny and this is all in the spirit of uh, good humor and intellectualism and i think the you know the stereotype of the humorless left does ring true until pretty recently mm -hmm. um you know now you have a lot of media outlets like lefty outlets that incorporate a lot more humor mm -hmm. into their ideology so i definitely think that's the way we should be going but i don't know what it's going to take for it to overpower the right because the right does seem to have a monopoly on humor right now yeah it's funny because when i was coming up in in college in the early aughts the joke was that the right was humorless and we had you know John Stewart was on TV and everyone thought he was the bee's knees. And this is before there was like, you know, a really visible left. I don't want to say that because obviously some people were always leftist and I was the one that was just a lib and didn't see it maybe, but it didn't seem like there was as much um, of a uh, balkanization among the left. And so we really enjoyed those kind of cultural heroes, you know, Al Franken. I mean, these people were out here on our team being funny and delightful. Even Bill Maher wasn't a total pill back then, yeah. you know, and it was the right that just didn't seem to get it. And Tucker Carlson was this goof in a bow tie and nobody took any of them seriously. And now I, it's weird to be in the position where I am. I often do feel like a, a scold, a humorless scold when I am in mixed political company, like on rising, because what happens is they'll bring up something that I would just avoid in my personal life. Cause it's not that, I don't, I don't think of it as a, a, an important political um, nexus point for my material politics, right? Some culture issue. But that affects a legitimately vulnerable community like trans people. Mm -hmm. And I feel this constant pressure to be cool. Be cool. Be chill. Be cool. Like, let the joke slide. And I know that my credibility rests in some part on doing that. But at what cost? At what yeah. cost? I agree. It's it's something that is, uh, you know, needs to be juggled very carefully, because I do think a lot of the allure of the right with the paradigm shift that has happened, where the left has now become humorless and the right has all the good times. Um, all, you know, a lot of their humor is, you know, the punching down humor. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're punching down on those that are powerless. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not a good idea to do that on the left, because then you're just playing their game. But that seems to be the main thing that attracts people in. Mm -hmm. That's what's funny to a lot of people. Whether, whether or not they actually believe the ideology behind the jokes, mm -hmm. that's what's alluring. Um, so honestly, don't know. It's, it's tough. Like, you know, the nature of humor itself. Like, you can say certain things amongst your friends that you can't say in public because your friends know you're joking and your friends know that you don't mean any ill will to it. But when you're doing it on a public platform like the right – um, like the right does, if you do it on a public platform, people won't know. But I think what the right does well is that they kind of sell that notion of we're all friends here, so let's joke in this way because you know I'm not evil. You know? Yeah, when I, I used to have a podcast when I was anonymous um, with my best friend, and we talked about both politics and pop culture. And I used to feel like I could get my shots off in the pop culture realm 
because it was anonymous and nobody was really looking to me to be an example of anything. I mean, you know, to the extent that anybody does now, I felt like I could be a little mean in the way that is required to be funny. <laughs> you know, yeah. like we'd make fun of celebrities and talk about whose dress was ugly at whatever award show and, you know, make some off. I mean, we did a promo ad where we made a joke about how Halle Berry can't keep a man when obviously, you know, she's had this history of domestic abuse and it's like not really funny, but you know, the kind of things that we say to each other in private, because we yeah. know where we're coming from and you know, that we wouldn't actually diminish those kinds of experiences. And, and we do like, when I reflect on it, I, I feel often like, oh wow, my hands are tied. Like I'm often doing interviews or I'm often talking to people and thinking, oh, I, I can't say X, Y, and Z because so many jokes implicate all of these issues that I'm supposed to be fighting for and that I care about. And, you know, is that, you know, am I, I think it's right and good to do that, but there is this trade-off and I'm me, I'm not saying every leftist has to do that. I think, you know, Michael Brooks was funny, you know, and said off color stuff. And some people didn't, maybe didn't like it, but a lot of people listened to him and he flipped a lot of people from the right. Cause he was kind of like a bro. Yeah. I, I'm definitely inclined to agree with you. I think that is the key to attracting more people to this side, but it's, it definitely has to be much more calculated and well-balanced than how the right does it. So it, mm -hmm. it's really all, all a game of give and take. How much humor are we willing to give off without perpetuating the negative things that come with that humor? And can you be funny punching, yeah. punching up? I saw Ryan Grimm he tweeted this thing earlier today of Jeff Bezos being like completely tone deaf as he's talking to William Shatner about, and William Shatner's getting kind of emotional about what it meant for him to travel into space and like kind of choking up and behind Jeff Bezos, people are popping champagne. Jeff Bezos becomes like obviously distracted like a child and completely misreads the room and steps all over here. Here, here I found it. If you'll indulge me here, here it is. It's short. Not only is it different than what you thought, you know what my, my, the impression I have that I never ex expected to have is you're shooting up. Come here. I want one. It's Bezos now. Pivoting completely away and asking for the champagne. I want to hear this. Here. You want a little of this? Hey. Shatner's looking there down, dejected, and now Bezos is spraying champagne all over the guy. Like, and I, and I was thinking, I was, I was watching this, I was thinking, now, Jeff Bezos is a complete clown, and he's also a bad dude. Why is it that some random, nameless trans person can become the enemy of the world or, or Leah, the swimmer can become the enemy of the world. But Jeff Bezos, who's like the richest man on the planet, who has a demonstrated history of being a capital B capital G bad guy. We can't make fun of how goofy his Elon Musk is a goofy dude. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is a goofy ghost like protoplasm protoplasm of a guy like, why aren't we, but the left, we don't even, we don't even go there. We don't even talk about these people in those kind of character terms. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the big issue is that why a lot of people wouldn't find that funny necessarily alluring is because there's a big majority of people that think they are temporarily, temporary embarrassed versions of Musk and all those people that haven't gotten to that point yet. Because everyone would love to reach that level of status and wealth as those guys. But mm. no one wants to face the plight of someone going through gender dysphoria and whatnot. 
Mm. So it's a lot easier and it feels a lot better to punch down on what you don't want to be than punch up on what you do want to be. That's very insightful, Dylan. So, uh, yeah. And but isn't the challenge to try to make, you know, to to talk about these people as though they are something that you wouldn't want to be? Because if you randomly pointed, you know, what's her face? Um, You know, there's many, many things about, let's say, Donica Rowan that I would want for myself. She's a successful elected, you know, um, uh, official first trans elected, blah, 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 whatever the statistic is, you know, uh, people like, um, you know, Laverne Cox are famous actresses who have wealth and glamor and status. I mean, there's plenty of trans people that you could point to. And so there's many aspects of their life that I would want, even as I recognize the difficulties in being trans in a transphobic community in a transphobic country, the same way that there are things about being Elon Musk that I absolutely do not want, <laughs> despite the obvious benefit of having never having anything of money for the rest of your life. Yeah, uh, I think I think with that, it's a lot harder to grasp because, um, you know, the Elon Musk figures are a much more traditional um, a traditional look at what success looks like, whereas mm. the opposite is. A, a version of success that hasn't really been seen in recent times and that's a lot harder to grasp or even believe that it's real mm. that's what i would say of that which is what makes you know makes which makes this whole thing a lot harder because now to be funny against um you know the musks of the world there has to be a paradigm shift and not only what is funny but how we view what is good mm. Ooh. That's a word, Dylan. That's a word. Look, how are you? How are you doing these days? Uh, a lot better. I still uh, wrestle with how I used to be, but you know, mm-hmm. I got to tell myself that that's that's what I used to be, not who I what I am now. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't regret what happened. Uh, you know, that when not during that time, because it it does give me the tools to talk to some of my current friends now that are adopting these sort of talking points because I Mm. know how to handle it now. I know how to talk to them. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of people don't have is someone to talk to talk these issues through with, without it being like a hardcore lefty communist or whatever, that'll either just bore you or outright attack you at the, (laughs) at the beginning. (laughs) That was really, that was a read of the left. We're we're either boring (laughs) or aggressive. There's (laughs) It's not a, there's truth in that. <laughs> I, I see myself reflected in that. It happens. We, we guilty. No, I, mean, I mean, same here. Same here. Trust me. Like, like a, another thing is that when, when you come from that, that right space, that, that space of the far right or whatever, you don't become de-radicalized by any sense of the word. You become re-radicalized, but on the other side. Mm. So you want to be just as aggressive as how you once were on the right to combat what you once were. So I, I feel you. I was definitely in that position before. Well, I, I look, I really appreciate you being so vulnerable with us and spending all this time on the horn with me. I, I'm genuinely captivated by your story. You're a really great narrator, a uh, really great storyteller and a very insightful person. So I hope that you call back again and thank you for listening to the show. No, thank you for having me and uh, keep on doing the good work. I really enjoy what you do. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate you. Keep the faith. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that was lovely. Let's uh, let's hop around a little bit. Let's take one from near the front-ish. Uh, how about you, doctor? 
What's on your mind this evening? Um, good evening, um, Brianna. Good evening. Um, yeah, I wanted to, um, this is more of a, like a question than anything else. So, um, I was arguing with, uh, one of the Kings in my circle and I had realized something in that moment that when the, um, when I first got the notification of what happened in Uvalde, Texas, Mm-hmm. I immediately ignored it because I sort of gamed it out in my head within two seconds. And um, and I was wondering, I was like, uh, am I becoming desensitized to uh, violence or am I becoming more cynical about anything changing? So I was just wondering in your perspective, mm-hmm. you know, do you feel... You're being pulled in either either direction? I think it's, I think that's a little bit, a little A, a little B happens. I think it's less the A than the B though. I think it's less being desensitized to feeling a sense of overwhelm and like you don't even want to emotionally engage because you know there's no productive outlet for it because you're so pessimistic about change, you know? I mean, they do go together, right? It is difficult because, you know, sometimes I do feel like, Brianna, you got to force yourself to engage in all that's going on. Sometimes you got to protectively withdraw and do a little gallows humor like doctors have. You know, doctor. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, I do force myself to reengage periodically. And I, I think I have the same impulse as you at, around Uvalde, but as the details trickled out, it was just so horrible that, and I had to talk about it so much because of the Hill, you know, I've, at this one, I forced myself into now. I, I know a bunch of stuff has happened in the last few days. There's a pregnant black woman that got shot. There's a bunch of stories that I have not put my eyes and ears and brain and heart on for better or for worse. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, sometimes you got it. Like I follow this account. That's like, a, um, Every day they post pictures of people who were killed in the Holocaust and it's, you know, like children, you know, and I, sometimes I'm like, Brianna, why are you doing this to yourself? But I do feel like you, you, I, the world is such that you do have to kind of get in the practice of setting up reminders that everything is not an abstraction in a tweet. Yeah, I, I didn't, um, when I was talking to the king my circle like i um it was i was thinking back to like a a day prior where i saw one of the parents like i was just scrolling through twitter twitter and i saw um one of the parents um crying over his daughter and i mean i want like i want to be a uh, have a daddy's little girl and seeing seeing the um him being emotional that's when i felt more triggered and more emotionally attached to the moment, but that took like like seven days after after it happened. Um, I also follow an account on Twitter. Uh, I can't remember her name for the life of me, but uh, some journalist that I believe maybe still in um, Israel, and mm-hmm. this person is constantly posting the atrocities that are um, happening in uh, Palestine and. I've been following this account since maybe 2015 or something like that, and 
you know, I, I, it's sort of, um, 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 masochistic. It can be masochistic at, at times. Um, seeing, you know, um, bodies being carried to be buried or whatever. But it's sort of like a reminder that, um, you know, there's crazy shit happening um, across the world um, and we should fight for a better world. But, you know, after this, um, after today, I'm realizing that, like, I didn't, um, because like I said, in the moment, I just ignored the, the notification. But today I was just like, wow, did I, I really didn't. I really was detached from 19 children, 19 babies being um, murdered in cold blood. And I was just like, man, am I the only one that's experiencing this on the left? So, yeah. 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 I mean, I was thinking about it um, when we were all looking at the videos of the the coffin beat down what not two weeks ago now there's so much that that happens in in you know the the funeral procession beat down um and you know really again sometimes having to say out loud to myself like this is really happening there is a person in that coffin there are family members in attendance this is like really absorbing the cruelty of what happens but like i don't i mean why I, i'm curious why 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 are you asking are you feeling guilty about that dissonance are you feeling like you have to overcome that dissonance because i do feel like on some level i'm torn i'm torn because it's protective right it, you can't be feeling everything all the time or you would never get out of bed that's a very good point it was i yes it felt um I felt guilty a bit, uh, sort of how maybe the, the that dynamic is similar to uh, one of uh, where someone goes from racks to riches and loses a sense of what the working class experiences on a daily basis. Um, you know, um, my life is pretty good. Um, I don't really have any complaints. I think I'm doing better than most of the country. And um, uh, and I was just worried for a moment that I was becoming detached from what you know, you know maybe average people would experience on a daily basis. So, well, for what it's worth, you don't sound detached to me. You sound like someone who has a life and is busy and is kind of compartmentalizing in a way that's probably healthy and dealing with grief on a timeline that you know was working for your life. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, that's very accurate, actually. Okay, that's that sounds um, that sounds very accurate. Um, but for you, who's in the realm of um, media and news, this, this is something that you have to experience on a daily basis. So, do you find yourself compartmentalizing, or? I told Robbie, you know, at the end of last week, that I don't, I don't know how people who were, you know, news folks during nine eleven or any number of other tra- tragedies. That, that went on for kind of weeks, did it. Because just a few days, you know, I do three days a week at Rising, just after a few days of that coverage and having to return the story, return to the story again and again every day, every morning, with the new details coming out and growing charges of malfeasance of the cops and all of that, you know, there's, there is no escape. I mean, you can escape once you're off air, but, you know, you kind of have to be paying attention to what's going on. So you're prepared to talk about it the next day. So you're not allowed to escape. And I've talked to some other folks about this, you know, other folks, Crystal, other, other folks that are in the space 
about even tragedies aside, the kind of uh, emotional and cognitive burden of feeling like you're always responsible to know everything that's been happening and not being able to log off and you know, not being able to put down Twitter and the phone. And, you know, small is violin for me. I, I love that I get to do this for a living. It's such a privilege. I never imagined that I would be able to. And to be honest, I'd be doing it for free if I were still at the law firm because I was a very negligent lawyer who was basically spending my whole day on the internet at the law firm. Um, but it is, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of hypervigilance. Like I'm like, I'm like, I can catch myself in this weird frenetic like stance when I'm sustaining in the kitchen in my mom's house over Memorial day, like Brianna, like relax. Like you can put this down. Like, what are you constantly refreshing for? Mm, mm. Um, last thing, uh, I enjoy your dynamic between uh, between you and uh, Robbie. Even though I find Robbie's uh, points like sometimes insufferable, um, I do enjoy watching him and you guys interacting. Um, well, I'm glad because I, I enjoy it too. The thing about Robbie that you have to understand is that we're both Leos. <laughs> 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 and we're bringing big Leo energy to the set. If I am in the makeup chair too long, Robbie's like, excuse me, I need to get done up before we come on. <laughs> Robbie's like, how's my hair? I'm like, it's fine, Robbie. <laughs> and I've, I've really enjoyed having that social dynamic to my work, which, you know, I've been home. I haven't worked in an office or had to go in and see people since the Bernie campaign ended. So I am enjoying it. I, I, th I think it makes me better to be having to defend my views against people uh, who don't agree with me. And one day, I'm confident I'm going to convince Robbie that he's not really a libertarian. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, a fool, that's a fool's dream. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, good luck to you. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, one last thing. Okay, so sure. this is something that, um, well, you, you pronounce your name better than... Um, um the robbie um uh your lawyer friend um miss olorine mm -hmm. right, so well, it's, mm -hmm. yeah yeah so yeah robbie the way he pronounces it because i'm nigerian um the way he pronounces it he is it's, it's as if he's saying o l m o l a m i and you pronounce it um better like well how should we be pronouncing it because I call her Ole in real life. I mean, she tells people to call her Ole. So I always have to remind myself, oh, Ole, I mean. But how, how should we be pronouncing it? Yeah, no, I actually have friends with the same name, and they sometimes say um, Ole as well. Mm -hmm. But Ola Yemi, Ola Yemi, like, yeah, yeah. I got it, Ola Yemi. Yeah, is the yeah part that's that's missing. And Robbie, he just skips the syllable altogether. Ola um, Yemi, Ola Yemi. But I appreciate you um, um, uh, platforming her and sharing her articles and stuff like that, especially on, on Rising. Yeah, of um, course. I think she's just fabulous. Needs to be on every platform and have a million shows because I think she's the funniest person I've ever spoken to in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I watched, I watched uh, your um, your the dating episode. Oh. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> we got to do a follow-up. I was hoping – I first reached out to FD months ago, actually, because I wanted him to come on the – the the male dating episode, the follow up episode we did, and I wish she had because I think he would have whipped some of those other men, <laughs> men on the panel into shape. No shade, no shade, no shade. But we're gonna have to do a co-ed one coming up soon, so stay tuned. Okay, you have a nice right. day. You too. All right, hopping around, hopping around, Dirk.
you're up next. What's on your mind this evening? Well, Dirk opted out. Fair enough, Dirk. That's allowed. How about Kay? That's an avatar I haven't seen before. What's on your mind this evening? Kay, you're going to have to press the unmute button in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. Okay, I think I got it now. Can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. What's on your mind? Uh, Not much, actually, for this particular topic because uh, uh, I'm not really following up on the manosphere or anything like that. I think (laughs) I'm a little bit too old. How old are you, Kay? I'm 41. Kay, that's not too old. You're just a few years older than me. Yeah, but if I'm, if I'm, uh, I don't think I'm going to be going on the internet trying to get someone like Jordan Peterson to tell me to clean my room. It's, it's, you know, You've already got that part figured out. Yeah, I think a lot of men kind of grow out of that after a while. It's, I think when you're younger, maybe that's something that you're seeking. What's funny about that to me is that I'm looking right now at my unmade bed, and I'm looking at the headboard that I just purchased maybe five or six months ago, which is my first headboard. (laughs) And I'm thinking of all those memes about how men don't have it together and men are so messy and they take these selfies in the bathroom where you can see all kinds of unseemly things in the background and the mold on their shower curtain. And I'm not that bad, but I know plenty of women who could be dragged by those memes as well. And I think it's the funny, what's funny to me is the difference between how society approaches women who need help and women with ADHD and women who have organizational problems and women who can't, you know, aren't successful romantically. That's, there's kind of an expectation that you're supposed to just keep it to yourself and stay quiet and deal with it privately and, you know, not shoot anybody. And then there's not that sense of entitlement that exists. And we talked about this on the show, that entitlement that seems to exist in the male context where that leads to a sort of anger about it. Women, I think kind of feel like, Oh, I guess I don't deserve a man. And men are like, no, (laughs) they should force women to have sex with us. (laughs) You know, I don't know, but I don't mean to force you into that topic. You said very clearly that that wasn't your bag. So what are you thinking about this evening? What is preoccupying you? You Yeah, actually my project is, and will always be, I think, uh, the climate, you know, that's Mm. uh, something that's every time I look around, I just see things falling apart. Mm. Some things are being reported on, other things are not. Um, I don't know if you heard uh, the story about uh, the guy who threw, I think it was a cake, at um, the Mona Lisa painting in Paris. No, when was this? This was like two, three days ago, I think. Mona Lisa Um, cake. Mona Lisa smeared with cake in apparent climate protest at the Louvre. Yeah. And so the funny thing is I'm reading a book right now by... Kim Robinson, I think. The title of the book is The Ministry for the Future. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically um, um, a story, maybe let's say 20 years in the future, where she's kind of outlining all the things that have gone bad on the planet. You know, And uh, a lot of the things that she, she wrote about are actually happening today. And I think mm-hmm. she wrote the book maybe five years ago. But yeah, she was um, kind of highlighting like um, for many people, uh, no one really went out and did any major, you know, direct action against capital or property or anything like that, or take going out and taking people's lives. But they did small, you know, protests like throwing cakes <laughs> mm. at old paintings and stuff like that, <laughs> just to kind of spread the word. 
and keep it on the foreground because you know it's it's not really um, discussed a lot now. You don't even hear a lot about what's that uh, little uh, chick from Sweden again? Oh, uh, Greta Thunberg. Yeah, you don't hear much um, from her. I'm sure she's still out there, kind of beating the drum, but the mm-hmm. media has kind of tuned it out. I mean, no one heard about this uh, cake smearing thing in Paris. I, I don't know. Well, they should have picked a painting that wasn't covered in glass. I mean, there's not even really any permanent damage here. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, no sorry. I'm not saying that yeah. someone should go to jail over whatever. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's right. You know, we had that climate episode, what, three, four weeks ago um, about the protest that happened in, on April 8th that didn't get really a lot of media breakthrough. I think the sentiment among lots of folks, including climate activists like Greta, who are you know, obviously very committed, is that, well, there's nothing to do right now because Biden's in office. He's dealing with this inflation stuff and the high gas prices, and everybody believes that the solution is to open up more drilling wells. And if you don't, then the Republicans will get you for it. And if you do, the Republicans will get you for it. We had a guest sitting on Rising, a Congress, a conservative congressman who was, you know, criticizing Biden for not, you know, making more, doing more American drilling. And I was like, well, I hate to defend Biden. Like, I hate being put in this position. But like, not that that's a defense. I obviously don't want Biden to be doing this, but he is doing exactly that. Like, I'm mad at him for doing the thing that you're saying that he isn't doing. And by the way, that's not going to affect oil prices because it's going to take like five years for any of this stuff to ramp up. So what are we even talking about here? Uh, You know, and so that because all that's the political climate, people just feel like there's no point in even bringing up the climate. Yeah, and I think today I heard that um, the U.S. is sending 700 additional 700 million more to the Ukraine. Um, Just today? Wait, when it... Okay, let me look at this. Need to check. Um, I I think I saw it on my Twitter feed coming in at some point, but it could have been someone... 700 million in additional security assistance for Ukraine. Yeah, this is... I'm going to do an episode on this. I I reached out to Fidel Kaboob this afternoon to see when he can come back on the show or on Rising because I've noticed that all of the economists, they tend to have on you know, lovely people, but they tend not to share my politics and they mm-hmm. offer explanations for uh, inflation that are not the explanations that Fidel and uh, uh, what's her, uh, Claudia Sam explained to us on this show. <clears throat> and I have this burning question, which he validated. I'm on the right track today, which is why is it that we keep spending millions and millions on military spending and the government spends all this money on Lockheed, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. And none of that spending is considered to be the kind of government spending that drives up inflation. Whereas if they send people a thousand dollar checks, that's considered to be definitely inflationary and everything that's wrong in the country can be blamed on the fact that we got a child tax credit for a year. Exactly. And I don't live in the United States. So God I, bless I you. In, I live in Belgium. <laughs> so, um, mm, well, Belgium, the whole other kitten caboodle. <laughs> How was yeah. it at Christmas time? Uh, pretty chill, actually. Uh, it's not too bad. You guys don't uh, have to deal with that. Um, what's that? Uh, that little black fella's name? Uh, Zlata Pete. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Don't even get me started on that. Um, <laughs> That's the least I, of your concerns. You got health care. <laughs> I do, and as I said, I try to focus on the climate and anything I can do. Just, just yeah. Try to keep away from the distractions. Uh, yeah, I, I actually that. work for the European Commission, so mm. I'm, I'm kind of like in the middle of neoliberal hell here. Mm. It's like every week we have a meeting about how we can raise additional funds for the Ukraine. 
mm. and uh, I don't hear about them talking about meetings to to raise funds for green technology or solar panels or any of these renewable energies. You know, well, what's going on? How are people reacting to um, the latest, uh, you know, cutting off of Russia to to Europe? What is it like ninety percent? How you know in the middle of a of a, a atmosphere where Europeans are paying very high gas prices already? It's summertime now, but it's not going to be yeah. forever. You know, how are people reacting to that? So that's the thing that's um, no one can feel it immediately, just because it's summer and there's uh, so much less gas um, fuel consumption during the summer as opposed to the winter time when you really need it for heating. Okay. So uh, yeah, um, we. Last at the beginning of the year, um, we got like a seventy percent increase in energy prices. This was before the war, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's going to happen uh, at Christmas time this year. But again, this is what's bothering me. You know, like um, they have money to raise and send to the Ukraine for war, which is fine. Okay, try to help the people, but uh, there is no subsidies on gas, heating, oil, anything mm-hmm. for us. Or if you're not going to subsidize, um, you know, energy prices, then start with the renewable energies um a little bit more intensively but yeah yeah Yeah, this it was you you guys should listen to the interview we did with this congressman today on uh on rising because what was it was so fascinating i just kept asking him you know why not subsidize you know look you're saying that inflation is being driven by the fact that Americans have too much money and that's why gas prices are so high. I mean, okay, we're in the middle of a very significant geopolitical conflict, but that aside, how do you feel about giving people money, subsidizing, you know, gas? There's all this profit from the oil and gas industry. They made $35 billion in profit last year. Are you concerned about price gouging? And how do you feel about just putting money in American pockets to pay for gas? And he says, absolutely, you know, not obviously to giving Americans money because he says he just says it like it's true that that's going to drive up inflation more. And he just flatly denied that there's any price gouging going on or that the oil companies are making money. He said, yes, there might be up 35 billion this year, but they were down last year. So reasons. So it's a little frustrating. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's just it's so frustrating. And that's why I do want to talk to more economists, because I would like to have an airtight response to all of that kind of thing. Next time it happens. But I appreciate you calling in, Kay, and giving us the, a view of things happening over on the continent. And just maybe one last thing before I go. I've been following you for a while, man, and it seems like you're working extra hard these past uh, couple of months. So I just want to say, you know, at some point, you might just need to pull the plug a little bit, take a little bit of downtime. Because, Are you uh, guys not going to... Really, really... <laughs> Are you guys going to all unsubscribe if I... You know, no, were to we take won't. a month off of bad faith, because let me tell you, <laughs> it would be lovely to do that this summer. <laughs> um, no, we've, I've never stopped. We've never, we've never taken a break in a year and a half now. We've never not put out two episodes a week in a year and a, a year and a half now. So I, I'm feeling like I would like to do that. Um, but, you know, it's it's a real privilege to have patrons. And I do feel this obligation to keep, you know, putting out content. And it's not most people who can kind of sustain themselves in that way from a group of people so dedicated and willing to pay, you know, $5 a month for content when streaming apps are only a little bit more than that for obviously all the content in the world. So I am, I'm really humbled by that and appreciate that. And I'm a little, I live in fear of jeopardizing that balance, but I hear you, Kay. I appreciate you. And I'm going to, I'm working on it. Okay. Just a request to all the patrons. 
So, Brie, that you needed to take a vacation by resubscribing this month. <laughs> also, it's my fault. I, I need to set up like a yearly option. That's that's on me. Because then if people were more people were locked in for a year, that would create a little more stability from month to month as well. But I appreciate you looking out for me, Kay. We got you. All right. Bye. Keep the faith. All right. I got to click on Omar with a Soledad O'Brien picture. How can I, how can I not? <laughs> I was hoping you would notice me. <laughs> I fell for the bait. I'm easy. <laughs> What's on your mind, Omar? I was going to do something clever with, with their name, but it just didn't fit. Oh, that's so funny. I was going to call you. Like, I was trying to figure that out too. Like, Soledad Omar. And, like, I was working on it and I couldn't come up with anything either. I, I mean, I came up with one. Uh, stole my dad O'Brien. <laughs> oh, you're getting some insight into my weird humor. <laughs> Omar, this is why the left is failing. <laughs> These jokes. <laughs> I didn't workshop it. <laughs> Well, we don't we don't judge you for it. What's what's on your mind this evening? Um, so I actually got to uh, listen to your whole uh, interview today, mm-hmm. and it's something near and dear to my heart. Um, this whole kind of construct of masculinity, mm-hmm. um, like I feel that yeah, there's I mean there's a great chunk of like what's happening with shootings related to masculinity. Um, but I mean, there's toxic masculinity in so many other countries. There's a bunch of guns in other countries, maybe not as much as us, mm-hmm. but it's still, um, they don't go through all these mass shootings. Um, and I feel like there's just something about American culture that is super violent. So it's an interaction effect with like kind of the, the man, manosphere, the masculinity, and the guns um yeah i think it just creates like this really um kind of explosive interaction but yeah i wanted to kind of address something about masculinity and how we're going to change that because um like a lot of times we kind of focus on on uh men and how how much um work they need to do on changing these things mm. and and the the brunt of of the responsibility should be on men like no question about it but i mean this whole uh masculinity is kind of perpetuated at, and it's very it's very compelling um because you have a whole society kind of supporting it including women uh, including like the the way that you know, it manifests in like subconsciously in like dating preferences, in uh, like the way that men are kind of humiliated, and then mm-hmm. that humiliated, in that humiliation, they're like nudged towards uh, becoming more uh, toxic in mm-hmm. their masculinity. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, there's just it, it gets tricky because w- whenever you're dealing with people's um, kind of attractions like what what like their preferences in in terms of uh, a partner mm-hmm. like people don't want to deconstruct that it's it's just like they don't want to deconstruct their what what gives them pleasure or joy mm-hmm. and that's what makes it tricky um because i you know just growing up um like I, I i would see this even among feminists even even like 
very like strong feminists like i would see them kind of uh making fun of men cutting down men in such a way uh, that was that was basically going to end up reinforcing like oh you should be this kind of man this kind of like mm-hmm. successful tall uh with status mm-hmm. um and and so like men in that situation it's no wonder that they kind of uh fall into the the warm arms of like men's rights activists and uh and these uh pickup artists kind of uh movements because they're they see themselves as deficient because they keep on getting re- that that reinforcement or that negative reinforcement from everywhere around them from even like so-called progressive women about this mm-hmm. and so it it just creates this really compelling like force to for men to just adhere to that uh to those to those gendered uh norms and so yeah like i think like i don't see enough conversation uh among women in in kind of talking addressing like kind of the way that they're contributing to to the phenomenon um yeah so I've been thinking about that as I have been consuming both Kevin Samuels videos. Are you familiar with Kevin Samuels? No, I'm not. So it's, um, he's like, I don't want to say the black Jordan Peterson. Uh, <laughs> he's more, you know, explicitly about dating. He's more of a pickup artist type uh, than, you know, Jordan Peterson, who's ostensibly like a psychologist and a professor and things like that. He recently passed away, uh, which the internet, you know, some faction of the internet delighted in. Fine. Because his whole thing is basically women will call into his show, like a video call, and they will explain what they want in a man and basically look for advice for why they're single. And there's this kind of ritualistic putting them down at the same time that a lot of the women do sincerely have kind of these outsized expectations. And it's this interesting portrait of this kind of broken cultural context where these women who obviously feel low value themselves on some subconscious or conscious level are very aspirational and what they think they deserve. So they say things like I deserve a man who makes six figures and I deserve a man who's this height and I deserve a man who has uh, you know, this kind of car and this kind of house. And it's part of their own self-esteem project. And I have some empathy for that, but of course it also comes off as very superficial and often just unrealistic because the women themselves aren't bringing a ton to the table in terms of frankly being kind <laughs> or generous or a uh, high earner themselves or, you know, a good cook or caregiver or, you know, attractive or any of the things they're asking for as well. And so there's this dynamic where everyone's just being really mean to each other and he's trying to put the women down and put them in their place. And the women are trying to assert that they are, uh, they have worth because of their humanity, which of course everybody does. And it's, it's like so toxic, but it's a really good portrait of the kind of dynamic that does really happen where I do think there's a kind of feminism that tries to assert itself by making these demands as an assertion of individual worth. But it's, it's it's the demands are so kind of superficial and not tethered to the intrinsic value of the other human being. You know, it's yeah. all just how much do they make and da, da 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 that it then makes you feel like if you don't have those things and you don't have human worth, you don't have any value if you're not at least six feet tall and earning a certain amount of money and all of that. 
And it's a really difficult dynamic because on some of on some of the instances you don't want to tell the women you don't deserve stuff. Of course you deserve a great guy. But it comes down to the definition of what constitutes a great guy. And the conversations are never about that. They're never about, well, what else could a guy bring to the table? Or what else could you bring to the table? You know, what other qualities? Okay, maybe, you know, nobody wants a guy who has nothing. <laughs> you know, maybe if you, you, you don't make a lot of money. Maybe you're kinder. <laughs> maybe you help out better around the house. You know, maybe you're a great dad or something else is going on. But that's never part of the conversation. It's just really flat. And, and so I, 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 I do take – it's difficult to take sides in those situations when you're watching the show. I mean, I do take sides because Kevin, Kevin Samuelson was such a pill. But it is difficult. Like I, I relate to why so many people are thirsting to hear Kevin Samuelson put women in their place. And I also understand why so many women call in like looking for a certain kind of validation. Yeah. 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 I mean, the men's rights uh, movement, it, it just misses such an opportunity. Like they're, they're like kind of tapping into something that's wrong. But then the analysis is is just completely off. Um, it, it just perpetuates like same uh, negative kind of dynamics. Like instead of like actually getting to the source of it, actually pushing for a healthy alternative, it just I mean, it yeah, it, it just it just seems like these these values that were that were raised with they're so compelling because they've been around for so long, not, not because they're innate, but that we like, you know, uh, the human mind is just great at coming up with all kinds of convoluted ways to justify what is, <laughs> what has been done. Yeah. I mean, I, I did a, I did an interracial dating episode on my first podcast, Bodhi with my best friend. And we were to be really, really clear, completely anonymous. Nobody's from nowhere with, he had like 10 followers on Twitter and I had like 300, but that, that episode that we put, we filmed and put on YouTube, you know, went hashtag viral. I mean, for us, even we got like 75,000 views, which felt like crazy, you know, at the time and, you know, still pretty good for a bad faith video. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of strategically had done an episode on that topic. Cause I was trying to catch the algorithm. And I knew, you know, he's Korean American and I'm a black woman and he's gay. Like I knew that there were all these algorithmic things and there's like a really kind of weird, uh, AMBW community that I was trying to get in (laughs) on the, um, algorithm. And also like some of the interracial gay dating discourse about some of the prejudice against Asian folks trying to date and, and black folks trying to date in the gay community. And it worked. Right. And people were fascinated by it. And we, t- we really took on these questions of p- preferences head on because, you know, he's very good looking, but still experiences like there's this weird tension between how obviously attractive he is and very conventionally attractive he is. And the fact that there's all of this like no fats, no gays, no whatever mm-hmm. lingo and all the gay dating sites. And obviously I was talking about my experiences dating as a black woman and yada, 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 and being kind of like considered to be undesirable and a respective dating context. And I think people really appreciated that we didn't just skirt around this idea of preference. Like we we're like born just magically having these things yeah. and that there's just nothing you can do and there's no politics involved and we shouldn't interrogate them. People are like, you like what you like. That's bullshit. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yep. it's bullshit. Yep. And you see these trends, you know, change over time and it, that illustrates that it's not, not 
random. It's culturally circumscribed. When you see, you know, little girl, I was talking to a friend, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, who has a teenage daughter. And she was talking about how she's kind of straight and blonde and grew up kind of like skinny and straight, straight up and down and blonde and really validated for, for that. And her daughter is curvier and brunette and kind of more olive complexioned and how everyone like loves her daughter now. And they all make fun of the skinny blonde haired girls and how she never thought in a billion years, that's how things would have flipped. Like things flip because culture changes for better or for worse. And the idea that people don't interrogate their biases and just say things like, I don't date Asian men or I don't date short men or, you know, I don't date, you know, Jordan Peterson. I, I think the swimsuit model woman is hideous because she's curvy you know, like, I'm not saying that I don't have my preferences, but it's worth interrogating them. Like, do I really not, you know, do I need a six foot tall man? No, of course not. I date all the short kings. Short kings come my way. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's a difficult conversation for people to have. But I think we should be having it in part because there are all these men that feel like there's some inter- insurmountable battles. I don't know how I would feel if I were like a five, five dude in this world. That feels really bleak. Yeah, you get the the comments out. Oh, that guy's got like a short man syndrome, and it's like, well, you when you you gave it to me. A, a yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's circular. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the whole like the whole like uh, archetype of like the angry black woman. I'm like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a context for this. Yeah, mad for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for calling in, Omar. Thank this you. has been fun. Yeah, All right, always. Back, back of the line, look alive. I'm coming for you, Amanda. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before I come to you, Amanda, I saw in the chat that home slice I tried to bring up earlier. Dirk, Dirk, I'm going to come back to you that you pressed the wrong button. So um, I'm going to give you a second bite at the apple. How you doing, Dirk? Did I press the right button this time? You are coming through. Fantastic. You know what? I'm actually glad I, I pressed the wrong button. Actually, Dirk, you're a little glitchy. Is is Dirk glitchy for other people? I'm gonna try to stand right next to my router. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if that's gonna help, but I'll try. Well, you're, it's better. It sounds good to me. What's on your mind? All right. God. God bless technology. Uh. Well, no. I just want to say I'm glad I pressed the wrong button before ooh, because. Ooh, ooh, Dirk. I, choppy again. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's going on? Did you move from the router? Did you get con- overly confident? Dirk? Yeah. Okay, I hear you now. Okay. I'm gonna I'm not Keep... gonna move from this point. Okay, good. Are go we, go are, for we're it. We're still good? Okay. Uh I was just saying I'm glad I waited because I really did appreciate everything Omar had to say. And I, I feel like you're coming so close to one of the points I wanted to bring up. I wasn't sure which direction to go in, but I feel like, you know, in light of everything that was just said in your last conversation, uh, there's something there that, you know, in your conversation, both on the last podcast you did, I did watch all, all the way through the Manosphere YouTube today as well. I, I packed it all in. Uh, Hero stuff. Hello. I'm sorry. Am I done? Did I miss? Ooh. Can you not hear me now? Uh, Dirk, I'm losing you again. I heard you say you watched all the way through the podcast, and I haven't really heard anything after that. Okay, I watched all the podcasts. I watched all the way through the Manosphere. 
Tell me you can hear me. Derek, I, I heard you repeat that you watched all the way through, but then you kind of cut out and I don't really hear anything else. Okay. I just turned off my Wi-Fi. I'm going for the 5G. Is this any better? 5G. Yes, this is better so far. Okay, so you watch the whole okay. show and? Okay. We're all going to get brain cancer from the 5G. But uh, I, I really, I wasn't sure which direction to go. But the Omar thing kind of decided it for me. You know, one of the things that really stuck with me uh, from your previous episodes that I think connects to the most recent one and everything you were just saying with Omar in terms of like uh, attractiveness and I'm really thinking back to that first one you did about dating, you had a a full women panel Mm -hmm. and you asked the question, would it be okay for us to date a himbo? Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone who's not as smart as us, (laughs) you know, men do this all the time and they're okay with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I could feel the, uh, apprehension, maybe the awkwardness when you asked that question, because I think you got the answer you expected, which was a sort of a resounding no. Mm-hmm. Fuck these dummies. <laughs> and I, I feel like the question of intelligence is hanging in the background here. And nobody talks about it. Nobody mm-hmm. brings it up. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that like once you get past five years of age, you know, your intellectual capacity as it's measured by, you know, psychology, which developed under capitalism and tends to measure correlations between success in the capitalist world and, you know, whatever intellectual measures they deem appropriate, however problematic that all might be, you know, this, this idea that, you know, by the conventional standards of how we consider IQ measurement, you as someone who probably has over 130 IQ, are you, you really just willing to say like 99% of the men out there who aren't as smart as you are out of your dating pool? Well, I would like to go on record as saying I was pro himbo. <laughs> I do remember that you were like trying to lead the folks in that direction. I was, I, I'm, I'm tentatively pro himbo. I feel like I was going to get dragged for being pro himbo. My concern about the himbo is that because of the way men are acculturated, not because of some innate thing, but there tends to be an expectation, no matter what the actual kind of knowledge base or intelligence levels or whatever of the of the two parties in this heterosexual pairing here that the man is dominant in all of these respects there's a cultural expectation that he be smarter that he earn more all of these things and when any of those is upset in my personal experience it tends to upset the dynamic so it's not that i personally I'm like needing a partner to be X amount of intelligent, whatever that means. But in my experience, there can be an added level to the tension. It's not if you disagree and someone, you know, is a better debater or something in the relationship. It's one thing when the person who tends to be. I'm really not loving the word smarter, but let's just go for it. Smarter is the woman sometimes that. You know, it it triggers some patriarchal 
button <laughs> with the men. And it's not just that I lost the fight. It's that I lost the fight and how dare she. And it can get a little spicier than it would otherwise. So I just don't want the drama. I don't want the ego bruising. I don't want any of that. So for those reasons, I like to have someone more. I, I, I don't know that the himbo will work. But if there were a genuinely lovely, nice himbo who was kind and supportive and helpful and was never insecure about his, you know, intellect or anything. And who was thoughtful and considered, even if he wasn't super book learned or trained up or any of those kinds of things. I, I call them Mr. Peanut Butters and I love a Mr. Peanut Butter. Mr. Peanut Butter was great. I don't know if you watched Bojack Horseman, but Mr. Peanut Butter is, is, is a fantastic character and obviously the best guy to date on the show. If you got to pick, obviously Bojack is charming and compelling, but broken and a disaster. And well, the person you should be trying to date is happy, healthy Mr. Peanut Butter. Yeah, I haven't watched BoJack Horseman, so I, I really can't speak to that. But you know, I did you watch? Think... Did you watch um, um, uh, Perfect Strangers in the eighties? Yeah, early nineties. Balky, short for balcony. I'm Balky is Mr. Peanut Butter, and the other guy, Applegate. What's his name? Well, the other guy is uh, BoJack. Okay, for, for the I old have heads. no idea that's what BoJack Horseman was, but now no, 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 no. I'm just saying, not like literally, but that's like the archetype, right? There's the one friend who's smart and savvy, but kind of dark and depressed and surly, and he's smart, so he sees all the problems around him, and he can't find satisfaction and peace. And then there's the happy-go-lucky friend that really irritates him because he seems blind to all the problems around, and therefore is able to live in this blissful ignorance. And good things just happen to happen to them and come to them even though they're not trying and it's very frustrating to the smart one. Okay. I'll, That's I'll the dynamic. I'll find like some online map that puts this all in relation to the ContraPoints thing about SpongeBob, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not totally with you on, on any of this BoJack stuff or even the, the <laughs> perfect strangers thing. But, you know, I, I do think that, everything you just said prior to that does raise the question on who enforces this sense of uh, pressure you know, on men to feel like, well, I have to be smarter than the woman that I'm dating. Mm. Where does that come from? I, I do think you guys came really close to it in mm. the most recent podcast episode where you know, you're saying that patriarchy isn't simply something that oppresses women. Mm -hmm. and you know, are non-masculine identifying people, however you want to put it, mm -hmm. it, it is something that is self-reinforcing that, you know, men do to each other in mm -hmm. a really aggressive and dramatic way. Mm -hmm. I would say you know, potentially even more so than the patriarchy is reinforced upon, you know, non-masculine identifying people. Uh, it's, it's really internally, enforced in a, yeah. a pretty brutal way. And, you know, I think a lot of what, uh, you know, the big problem that we have at this point is that there, there's not a you know, productive men's movement in, in a real way that says like, yeah, patriarchy is a problem for us. Mm-hmm. And addressing it is going to free us and liberate us mm -hmm. as men. 
and allow us to be more flexible in how we understand what masculinity is and what the value of masculinity is. And, you know, I, I think that is ultimately something that men have to do with each other and for ourselves. And hopefully everyone else can be okay with us trying to figure that out without Jordan Peterson and, you know, all the more problematic folks that are, are trying to inject themselves into that space where they see a vacuum. But we do have to figure it out. And I think we're, we're going to need everyone else to help us figure it out. Yeah. I mean, you the know? question that is rising in my mind is what is masculine masculinity without dominance, without superiority? And, and at that, you know, how well, does that it's... need to be removed from it? Because ultimately, if you look at what the value of men are historically, it's our ability to express dominance. It's our ability to, you know, protect and, you know, ultimately to die if we have to in order to, you know, protect women and children. Well, that's, that's really that's the, the only problem, value Dirk. that men have had. That's the problem, Dirk, because if you are not, in fact, superior, if you are not, in fact, dom- dominant to your partner because you don't make a lot of money or you're not tall or, you know, fit or um, smart or than she is, then you're in a little bit of a quagmire. You do feel like you don't have any value, even though I, or, or you don't have any mascul- masculine value anyway. And I think that's a problem. I think that there I, should be a way I to define masculinity. Framing, I, I mean, I don't think that the traditional value of masculinity is to be dominant over your partner. It's to be dominant over any opposing male who poses a threat. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to tell you as a woman, I, that's not how I feel. I feel very much that men (laughs) want to feel dominant. I don't think that's necessary anymore, but like the traditional norms that we get imposed on us by this, you know, reinforcing patriarchy of like dude culture is that like, that's what being a man is. And, you know, we don't have like the, you know, the academic investment you know, that feminism had, you know, there, there are women's studies departments in most universities at this point, there's no men's studies departments. I, I understand all the reasons for that. You know, men have been the default in every study for the vast majority of academia's existence, which goes back thousands of years. So yeah, I, I, I get why we're not the priority at this point, but at the same time, we might be the biggest problem and figuring out how to solve this problem requires some intellectual investment into what's wrong with that. And I appreciate that, you know, you and, uh, you know, your guest, Jake, I forget. I apologize. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Uh, do subscribe to his channel. I watched his last video. I, I don't agree with everything, but it was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you're, you're asking the right questions and I, I'm not saying I have any of the answers. I appreciate that you're going in this direction and I know there's other people that are waiting, so I'll cut it here. And I promise the next time I call in, we can talk about astrology. <laughs> All right, Dirk. I appreciate you. Thank you for calling in. Let's get a, let's get a girl in the chat, a woman. A, well, it's a cartoon avatar, so we'll see what happens. Leah. 
what's what's on your mind? What do you make of all of this? Do you think that, that um, this idea of dominance is kind of intrinsically embedded in this idea of masculinity? And if so, is that a problem? Oh, my God. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, my gosh. Hi. First of all, I love you. I love your show. You are amazing. Oh, my God. I'm so nervous. My first time calling in. You're very sweet. Oh, well, welcome. <laughs> Thank my you. sound effects going today. I'm behind. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, wow. Okay. First of all, that was an amazing episode. It's so funny because I was literally, and no one's going to believe this, but I was literally thinking, like, yesterday, like, you know, Brianna should should do like an interview with FD signifier or something. Like, I feel like they would be like a cool collab. And then like that video or no, I think I saw the Patreon uh, notification first. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, what in the world? That's crazy. That's because so... we were all watching his content over the last few days. Cause his new video was great. It was probably in all of our feeds. And I thought the same thing you yes. thought and reached yes. out. So and I still need to watch that video actually, but I have seen a couple of his videos before. Mm-hmm. And he's amazing, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fan for sure. Um, yeah, the, I, I, I don't know. I, it's just a bit depressing to think about uh, the way that men have been kind of indoctrinated with this kind of, uh, I don't know, this mentality that that we're talking about. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm personally single, you know, as a Pringle. Um, <laughs> and I am a little bit nervous to get back in the dating scene because I'm like, what am I going to find out here actually? Ilya, may, may I ask how old you are? I'm 27. Girl. Okay. <laughs> All right. I know, but like still it's, it's okay. Just, no, it's, I know. It's... I was panicking at 27. What, what part of the country do you live in? Can I ask? Yeah, I am in Southern Illinois, kind of close to St. Louis, so in that okay. kind of area. But I, I do want to eventually move to Seattle, actually, um, just to kind of get away, because I, I am, like, in a more conservative area. I've kind of mm. grown up here my entire life, essentially, um, and it's just kind of depressing, because I, and, you know, going back to just talking to to people about you know, or trying to educate white people, for example. Mm. Um, you know, I feel like I kind of like am, find myself in that position often living here and, and working jobs here, like the job I have now. I feel like it's hard for me to kind of speak up and mm. try and like be educating without being, you know, like, condescending or anything Mm -hmm. like that because it's like oh how do you not know this like how are you you know that's what I want to say but Mm -hmm. like I know I can't say it like that because they're Mm -hmm. not going to listen to me and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to I guess articulate what how exactly or or what's best going to translate to I guess what what their beliefs are and and for a lot of them I'm sure they've grown up you know thinking these same kind of beliefs so it's kind of difficult to unlearn I guess you could say but yeah I don't know yeah it's, look it's very difficult it's a lifelong project you know yeah. I'm fortunate to be kind of 
in a place where professionally I'm trying to figure it out, but everyone is just trying to figure it out in their own context. And it's, it's difficult and you're, mm-hmm. you gotta be kind of vulnerable and open to getting it wrong a lot of times before you figure out a magic formula. And that magic formula is not going to work on everybody. So it's, I think it's really kind of a brave thing to even try. So I applaud your efforts and I hope you make it to your, your sleepless in Seattle fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <Wait>. you. <laughs> Let me, can I, can I ask you some questions specifically? Cause I am really curious yeah. about this, this difference that exists between kind of the attitudes, uh, that, you know, men who might feel like there's being, there's unsuccessful in the dating market have and women who feel like they're being, they, ha- they haven't had the success they'd like in the dating market Yeah. and how those different attitudes manifest and where they place blame and things like that. And there is all this attention right now because of the mass shooters, because of all of this stuff about what's going on with men, these high suicide rates, these things that are like obviously a real problem. Right. But there was a stat that struck me, which was that men commit suicide at higher rates, but women attempt more often. And when I looked at that, I was like, well, this is another one of these ways that the manifestation of this problem, the depression or what have you, is making the woman's issue not seem as significant, even though it's right there, right. you know? And in some ways, I feel like women who are struggling in the dating market for various reasons, there's this presumption that it's kind of on you, you know? Oh, you're not successful? Mm-hmm. Go to the gym. Put some makeup on, go shopping, you know, laugh mm-hmm. more. <laughs> yep. um, whereas with men, apart from Jordan Peterson, who does tell people to, you know, learn in, in, in FD's parlance to wash their butt crack. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's not as much of that, like, change yourself to be good enough kind of a attitude. But am I making yeah. that up? Am I projecting? Am I just, am I doing, am no. I doing a, a man bashing right now? No, I don't think you're man bashing. I think that is pretty fair. Um, I definitely think there there is a lot of pressure, at least from my perspective, um, where I am in life to just like kind of, I don't know, have all of my shit together and, you know, be super... I don't know. High value, high value woman. So what, what does that mean to you? Do you feel on the apps? Are you, what is it? What do you think it takes on the apps to be a high value woman? Probably. I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like I see a lot of the celebrity culture um, and influencer culture and it's just like, Oh, you have to, you know, have a, a healthy lifestyle and work out and, and all of those things. But you also have to be, you know, financially stable and have your own, you know, place and car or whatever. And, and, you know, maybe you either, if, if, you know, I don't even know what I'm saying, but I guess just, you know, like, I guess that's what I've always seen, like, as having my shit together I guess just being like that and I'm just like very far from that right now I'm like I am so unhealthy and I'm like not I hate my job like I well I, I won't say I hate it it's probably the best job I've had but I still don't like it like I, I also hated my job when I was 27 and okay. 30 and 31 okay yeah yeah so this is probably very very normal for me to be experiencing right now and I I still have yet to really kind of be out on my own as well just because 
it's hard out here and it's it's just like it's a pandemic there's a recession and it's a lot going on like yes, give yourself yes. cut yourself some slack let me ask you this Aaliyah. Yeah. what are you looking for because the criticism of, of women in the manosphere is that women are looking for a man that has more than she has on offer so like the issue isn't that you know, the women that might not necessarily have everything together because who has everything together, but despite right. having not everything together, they're looking for a man that has everything together. Mm, what's right, your, right. what's your read on that? Are you, no. are you open to guys who are a little bit messy around the edges? Honestly, I think so. Because at the end of the day, like, are you just a kind person? Are you generous? Or, I mean, do you, do you like me? Like, are, mm-hmm. are you like, do you actually want to be with me? Mm-hmm. I think those are the most important things to me when it comes mm-hmm. to finding a partner. And yes, obviously if he has money, that would be great. That would be fabulous. Yeah, Cause it's hard you know, out here. You need right. two incomes. <laughs> and literally I'm like, I was thinking not so long ago, like, I feel like I need, I almost need a partner to have mm-hmm. like a decent apartment and like, you know, mm-hmm. a one bedroom. We're talking one bedroom apartment. These like... one bedrooms, they are out here playing. <laughs> they are designing these one bedrooms and pricing these one bedrooms for two people. My my best single friend, we're like always the single ones together. We are always griping about this. We're, you know, we're both turning 37 in August. She's living in, in Boston with roommates. I'm, I'm, I'm in my first one bedroom situation, courtesy of Colin. Thank you, Colin, for enabling <laughs> me to afford my first one bedroom at this big age. And it's like, I'm, I'm looking at my, I moved in here and I was like, wow, this is so much space. I thought I was messy. I thought I was disorganized. No, it turns out I just needed more space. And then I realized my closet situation with, it's got one of those like two on each side of the little hallways you walk to the bathroom mm-hmm. kind of setups. Mm-hmm. I realized, oh, I'm only supposed to be in one half of this because <laughs> this is designed right. for a couple. And that's like their side versus my side. And then in the bathroom, I have all of this, these drawers around the sink, two big drawers on each side of the sink. And I'm like, oh, again, I'm only supposed to be in half of these drawers. This is supposed to be my man's drawers. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so messed up. I know. I know. And it's just, it's crazy because like, I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to feel like I have to be dependent on another person to just survive on my own. But like, mm-hmm. I feel like I have, unless I win the lottery or, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like I, I need either a roommate or a partner and it just kind of sucks to be in that kind of predicament. But mm-hmm. I, I definitely think, you know, even if he doesn't have it all together, you know, it, again, it's, it's really like, you know what what are your intentions do we kind of align on an intellectual level on a spiritual emotional you know whatever level you know I think those are the most important you know aspects in a relationship for me that's so cute you're so young I'm like hi (laughs) are you mean to me (laughs) were you just mean to me on our first date (laughs) that's that's the bar oh he wasn't mean to me (laughs) yeah yeah he didn't try to put me down on this day (laughs) let me stop i'm being a little melodramatic but like my experience what's so funny about this manosphere stuff for me is that my experience with my girlfriend, I have some superficial girlfriends. I'm not going to lie. There are definitely like the, oh, he's going to be six, two queens out there. Like, I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that it doesn't exist. Yeah. But a lot of my friends are like, I just like, I would, I would like compromise almost anything if they're just nice and helpful, whatever way helpful means. Are you going to wash dishes? Are you going to go grocery shopping? 
Do you cook? Do you make the bed? Do you listen to me as I'm proofreading an article? <laughs> you know, whatever it is, whatever your capacities are, are you like doing any kind of value add? But it might be financial. Are you splitting rent? Whatever. Is there any, any value add? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally get that. And I'm so glad, like, I actually, I'm a huge fan of Bojack Horseman. So I love mm. that you bring up Mr. Peanut Butter because yes. some part of me is like, yeah, maybe I should, you know, get, get some. Are you hot? Like, but, like, like Mr. Peanut Butter? <laughs> like, like at this rate, I, I might as well just try and just see what happens. Like, might as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So I want to also, I want to ask you this because someone in the chat says like, when women are saying we are a lot, like the dating isn't working out for us, we're still going on dates. We also tend to have more in the way of social groups and friendships and, and stuff like that. When men are saying, I'm not going on dates, they're not getting any matches. They feel like they don't have any opportunity. Mm-hmm. The ratios and the apps that make them feel like they're like in a no man's land. Mm-hmm. And then they get, that's why where you get a lot of these real passive aggressive comments from men that are like, uh, we matched and she didn't even write back. Cause from their perspective, like every match is weightier because they have so yeah. many fewer of them. And it creates this kind of like a uh, sinister, um, passive aggressive, resentful is the word I'm looking for. Resentful dynamic. Mm-hmm. You think there's something to that? Yeah. I mean, I can definitely empathize with that. I mean, you know, no one wants to feel like they're not wanted, you know, by, by the sex they're attracted to. I mean, that's, that's, you know, not a a fun feeling, obviously. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just the apps are, uh, (laughs) you know, they can be really toxic (laughs) on both ends, you know, like Mm -hmm. in different ways, I guess, for, you know, men and women, I, you know, I guess, but are you on the apps? Do you do the apps? Um, I have before. I definitely have tried Tinder and Bumble. Um, I plan on trying Hinge in the future, but get we'll off see. Tinder, get on Hinge. Is my advice to you? Okay, yeah, yeah. That's I'm definitely done with Tinder. I I have deleted that app like five times, and I'm definitely done now. I was on <laughs> Tinder for like a month in 2012, and that was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was like way back in the beginning yeah yeah no that oh my god I hate tender yeah there was um, nothing for me there <laughs> yeah so I'm I'm kind of I haven't been on them in a while though I've been single I'm, I've only had one boyfriend um mm-hmm. I've been single for like five years or six years or something like that do you meet people IRL um sometimes but honestly not really because I don't like to go out cause... like how I don't understand how people do that. That never yeah, happens for me. <laughs> no, I, I, if I do, like, I used to go out a lot in my earlier 20s. And mm-hmm. sure, like, we would go to, like, bars or whatever. And, like, guys would try to get my number or whatever. But, like, that never went anywhere. Like, they were never really trying to, like, Yeah, you know? that's true. I did used to go out and, like, dance. And yeah. then you would be dancing and they'd ask for your number. And that was the thing. I also always wondered, how do people who don't dance meet each other like how do people from let's say cultures that aren't as big into yeah. dancing and a little grindy grind on the dance floor like how i like, literally like i don't understand how other people are even finding each other but yeah since i grew up and 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 don't do that anymore and also covid and things yeah i don't i, I physically cannot contemplate like people are like oh yeah i met my partner at work work I've never wanted to date any of those people. No. Are you those guys? Oh, no. absolutely. I've actually, no, I've actually been sexually harassed at 
word. So yeah. Preach. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. In school. Yeah. I tried, like I dated guys in school. Like I had a boyfriend through college, Mm -hmm. you know, but out, out in the real world, when you're not in a little playpen of people exactly your own age and socioeconomic background and like life experience, I don't, I don't need like, what are you people bumping into people in the grocery store? (laughs) No, that never, like that is, that's like a meet cute, right? Like that's, that's what they call a meet cute. Right. I I don't, I don't like, I, I've always like envisioned, you know, like maybe that'll happen to me one day and I'll have a cute, like little meet cute and and meet the love of my life. I just don't feel like that's really Mm. that Mm -hmm. plausible. Like, Mm -hmm. cause I'm looking to, and I'm at an age, I'll tell you where I'm not above taking the lead okay (laughs) if i saw my husband what's that child's i shouldn't say chad what's that young man's name from the harry potter movies he's grown up now don't worry don't worry this is kosher (laughs) that young man uh, he's on how to get away with murder if i see that young man oh oh yes i know uh, elfie alfred something like that yeah 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 if i see him in these streets i will be shooting my shot <laughs> I, I, but I don't be you. seeing him out here okay <laughs> like, right right he's exactly. not tracing through washington dc no yeah and i i definitely have a bit of social anxiety as well when it comes to just going up and talking to people so i i think i want to just try and step out of my box more because i think sometimes you never know like even just a simple like compliment to someone's outfit mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. you never know where that could lead and you know it's it's a bit more intimidating for me at least going up to an attractive guy and saying something but i'm i'm gonna try to just step outside my comfort zone a little bit more i think that's what i'm gonna try and and do in the future to you know see if if you know not all what's your limit test what is your let me ask you this Ali. here's the real test how tall are you i'm five nine Okay, she's a little taller than average. I love a tall yeah. woman. Okay, Aaliyah, here's now the follow-up question. What is your height setting on the apps? Okay. <clears throat> That's a guilty sigh, Aaliyah. That's a guilty I'm sigh. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, dude, I can't, like I'm I I don't know. I I'm I'm fully aware that it is societal conditioning mm-hmm. that has led to this <laughs> bias that I have in it, I guess attractiveness toward yes six feet or taller yes and mm-hmm. i feel bad about it does that count for anything that i feel bad about it? look what counts for something is that you are on the taller side you're not some of these five two chicks who's rolling right, their eyes right. at dating a guy who's five nine so right. i'll give you that but girl you're five nine which means a man who's five eleven is still way taller than average he's taller than you you can wear yourself a little block heel and be the same height if that's the thing that matters to you. What's that's the problem? True. The love yeah. of your life could be sitting there on a rock, 5'10 and glorious, <laughs> swiping away, so waiting for you with his 401k and his <laughs> half, half a month's rent. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I think I will. Like, I have thought about that. Like, what about? 511510 even though it's you know not that much taller but it you know it's still taller and uh, you know I'll I'll, I'll take that in cons- into consideration Girl, I am 56 <laughs> I am 56 and do you know what I set my heights at what 56 
<laughs> now, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and think, oh, I'm overjoyed. Okay. I'm, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, the, the five, six guy, does he have to jump through a few more hoops? Does the profile have to be together? There Aren't there some other pluses that have to align for us right. to actually get out the door together? Right. Maybe. Okay. I'm not saying I'm a hero <laughs> here. You know, I'm not dying on the battlefield. Okay. Yeah. For, for short kings across the country. But I, I, you know, my, my last serious boyfriend was five, seven, God forbid I had set it at five, nine and just completely missed out on this human being, you know? Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And I, I do appreciate you, you putting me in my place about that because I do think <laughs> I am, I probably would be missing out on, you know, who knows who, you know, cause you're tall someone. girl. Like yeah. you, I, I'm trying to date men your height. i am trying to date men your height and like the pool the pool for you is gonna be smaller if you're not willing to date shorter that's just what my best friend's five eight and like i've given her this lecture many times yeah (laughs) i'm just saying okay leah i'm gonna let you go because i didn't mean to make this all about <laughs> me, 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 trying to play Yenta here with some imaginary no. short king. No, thank you so much, Brie. I appreciate you. I'm gonna try and call in more often because this was wonderful experience. So thank please you. Please so do, much. please do. Okay, I see in the chat. Julio says he wants to talk short king. So how can I not bring him up? Julio, what's on your mind? Hey, um, well, I'm five five. And okay, uh, tell us about it. Well, I'm five five and. Growing up, I, I'm also an Aquarius, and I'm also an INTJ, so everybody hates me. But, <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, I'm 5'5", five five, I'm also an Aquarius, I'm also an INTJ, and so everybody hates me. <laughs> oh, my God. What I, a self-read, Julio. I'm dying. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, everyone doesn't hate you, obviously. You're clearly delightful. Yeah, absolutely. No, I just, uh, you know, growing up in America, I'm Hispanic. Mm -hmm. So being like short to me isn't so out of the ordinary. I will say my father's six feet tall, Mm -hmm. but my mother's quite short. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I I, I got that in. Um, Yeah, everything that I've seen with statistics and stuff growing up, I'm going to make less money. It's harder to get promoted. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get less women talking to me and mm-hmm. all these things. And, you know, that's, that's a lot to work through as a young person. And that I, I know that it absolutely destroys people. I mean, I, I'll admit to you, uh, I was one of those kids that uh, wanted to shoot up the school uh, mm-hmm. when I was younger. And it's, it, you know, there's all kinds of pressure and bullying and, again masculinity like toxic masculinity by other men Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. that stuff's everywhere but uh i i i think i do think people take height too seriously um Mm. and i but at the same time you know it is kind of you know imagine how it feels i'm sitting Mm. here i'm five five you're a beautiful woman you're saying i'm setting the dial at five six so, I thought that was pretty reasonable, though, and all things considered. <laughs> well, look, here's 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 the thing. So the flip side, you're completely right. But the flip side of this, it's not all about the man when women say that. Some of it is about the the all of the the societal pressures on women to be smaller and to feel smaller, and that's really the issue. So my big issue with my my last partner, I weighed more than he did. <clears throat> so he was five seven but I had maybe like 10 pounds on him. 
he was what I used to joke and say, he's my goal weight. <laughs> so, you know, it, it wasn't that it was an issue for him. I was attracted to him. I liked the way that he looked, but there was this self-consciousness that came from feeling like society expected me to be smaller than him and lighter than him, which, you know, was not the case. And part, part of that was because we were very close in height. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair enough. Um, I guess my experience is that I can see why, uh, I, I don't know. I kind of see myself in some of these school shooters and stuff, mm-hmm. and I can kind of see why, uh, you know, how, how a person grows to ha- begin to hate everybody around them and have all sorts of problems. Uh, luckily I, I, I grew up a Quaker. I didn't, I didn't end up mm. succumbing to those demons. So, mm. uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I've done a lot of work to, to secure my place in society. I have a well-salaried position at a university, advanced degree. I come from, you know, my mother's a refugee. I come from an immigrant background. Mm. And and I've done a lot to secure it. But, you know, it, I look, I see short guys all the time and, you know, a lot of them aren't hemming their clothes, which you have to do when you're short. You have to learn mm-hmm. to use a sewing machine and stuff because clothes just do not fit. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're, I had a friend who was a tailor and he showed me how they're based on averages and they do these cuts. And it, it just, you know, it, it, it made growing up frustrating. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, bullying is pervasive. One of the things that I always noticed growing up is that when you're short, I, I feel like you pick up on certain things. And I picked up early on that I it felt like people's commitment to virtue was purely theatrical, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people said they cared. A lot of people talked about bullying and stuff, but it, it was still pervasive and stuff. Um, yeah, at one point, I will say, even in high school, I actually ended up uh, getting suspended. I got into a fight with another kid who has been picking on me on the bus uh, calling me a faggot, calling me short, all kinds of things. Mm. And, and so, you know, uh, I, I have been able to find my way, but with the future, at least in the minds of young people, and even myself, it's like virtually unimaginable because it feels so horrible and calamitous. I, yeah. I can see how, how everybody's falling through. Um, the walls are closing in. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, what, what it felt like when you were in that space in that headspace, and you mentioned being a Quaker, I'm not sure if that's a real part of the story of how you got out of that headspace, but what, I mean, what was that like? And what would you have liked someone to have said to you? What, what would have made that high school, middle school experience less unbearable for you? Um, honestly, I think as if, if the state had gotten involved in my family situation, mm-hmm. I feel like I reached out to a lot of teachers. I feel like I talked to a lot of people but, um, you know, there was abuse and it was not being addressed. And at that mm-hmm. point, the only person who could step in is the state. And they seemed really ill-equipped. Mm-hmm. So w- what was the ultimate escape? Was it just graduating from high school and getting out of the house? Um, yeah, something like that. It was it was getting out of the house, uh, basically. Um, and then I found community because uh, I started I, I started dating men. And so uh, I found my community in LGBTQ and kind of followed that through uh, college. And, you know, once I was in college, I was, it was easy to meet people and form stable relationships. Like I said, like 
it's never been hard. The, the reason that I think I got out of it too is because I'm very bright. I'm very mm-hmm. gifted. And so mm-hmm. I was able to sort of at one point say enough is enough and kind of uh, try to tell myself that I want to be, not necessarily like chasing happiness, but I want to, I, I want to have security of myself and who I am. And so I, you know, studied philosophy and I grew out of it, I guess. First of all, Julio, you have me here trying to blow up your, your little icon to see, okay, is he fine? <laughs> I'm going to ask him if he's in DC and then you don't even, you don't even date women. So like, you just play me. I was out here like, damn, he's right. I should date a five no. guy. Let me, let me, cl- let me take a closer look. <laughs> no, that's not true. I date women. I okay, absolutely all right. date women. I've okay, been, I look- just, I've been, I've tested out, uh, you know, I've been around the block. I've, I've mm-hmm. had my fair share of boyfriends. I've had my mother come and like have dinner with boys and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also had a girlfriends on and off and I've actually been in a stable relationship. I think that probably helps a lot in creating stability mm-hmm. in my life as well. And that's been going on for about 10 years and that's with a woman. Okay. All right. All right. Let, let's not do a buy erasure. It's, it's June yeah. 3rd. We're just getting the month started. Okay. So I, I am really touched by this idea, one, of, of when you feel like a problem is fixed, when you feel like a problem you're confronting is insurmountable, whether it's in the dating context and you feel like, oh, you know, my options are so limited because of my height or, you know, if I've, I have felt at various times in my life like I was working at a real deficit. I mean, the world is different now. A lot of you guys are younger, <laughs> but 15 years ago, you know, 20 years ago when I was in high school, you know, it was not easy out there for a dark-skinned, nappy-headed black girl, like, in these streets, or any black girl, really. But it just, Michelle Obama hadn't happened yet, and people weren't checking for you in the same way. And I remember feeling that was a kind of, like, a fixed, like, oh, I, you know, I always had, like, a healthy self-esteem. I always was, you know, inculcated with a value for my own hair texture and skin color and things like that in my family. I knew it wasn't about me. But it didn't change the reality of the situation that I knew the things that I valued about myself weren't valued by larger society. And it was very frustrating. I never – I didn't kiss a boy until college. You know, I you know, was a little bit of a late bloomer in a lot of different respects. So I, I really – it really resonates with me the idea that when you feel that hopeless and when things feel that fixed that you might want to do something dramatic to shake things up or to escape like the shooters do – and I'm also struck by your reference to the fact that you ultimately found your community. You said that a couple of times and that the difference between a lot of single women and a lot of single men is that the women tend to be less isolated because we're socialized to have more friendships and other kinds of social connections than men do. And so when we're single, we're not necessarily alone in the way that I think men are sometimes so isolated and then driven to the, the Internet, um, the way Dylan, uh, the first caller, was describing. Does that resonate with you? I mean, I understand it. I always tried to stay out of uh, the internet and the chat rooms and things like that. Um, I mean, I'm big into Linux and everything, but, uh, you know, that's, to me, that was always just like toxicity feeding uh, toxicity. When you say, I mean, I don't, if this is too intimate, feel free to tell me to back off. Um, But when you say that you were really feeling like, you know, shooting up your school and stuff like that. How, how visceral was that feeling? How much did you think about that sort of thing? 
Um, well, I, I, it came up a lot when you're thinking, when I was thinking about killing myself. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it would come up in the, it, it, I, I feel like it, it peaked definitely towards the end of high school. Like mm. I didn't go to prom. I started cutting myself off. Mm. Um, I wasn't around people. And I do think that a big part of why I'm still here and I was able to get through it is, uh, because my parents are, I've heard how you've described yours very similar word. No, not even finger guns or mm. you're in trouble. Mm. So there was no gun to access. And so I guess it never, it, it never went too far, but I mean, it did, I, I did have to peak and it, it the peak was, was terrible. Um, and I, and I felt like I was reaching out and I f- feel like a lot of these, these people are reaching out and I feel like the state just doesn't, there's no, no capacity to, to do much about it. It requires investigation, time, effort. So you, you said you reached out to the, the state. Are you able to say specifically who you reached out to and what the response was like? Oh, you, you know, don't, was, again, tell me to shut up if I'm, this is too much. No, it's okay. You, you know, I'm a kid. So, uh, you know, you talk about these things to your friends. You try to make it clear to them. You kind of try to reach out to your friend's friend, your friend's parents sort of through them. Mm-hmm. So I had a few friend's parents that I kind of talked to. Um, but then it would be like teachers. I remember in senior year, the, you know, the, the teacher uh, passed out a paper at the beginning of the year and said, uh, tell, you know, tell me something about yourself that I don't know. They, I wouldn't know from looking at you or whatever. And I said, I'm not a happy person. Aww. And, you know, it's just, and, and while I felt like there was care and attention in her personally, it never escalated to the point that it had to. Uh, and, you know, it, when you're young, you don't I, right now I, I realize that it was as easy as going to the, the police and demanding uh, something be done. Mm-hmm. If I go to the principal's office or something and demanding something be done, be straightforward, frank speaking, things would have things would have changed. Mm-hmm. But I but I to get to that point, it, you know, there's all these procedures and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I will say I think I culminated everything culminated. I got Baker acted. Um, and you got uh, Baker. I'm sorry. I got Baker acted. That means, uh, I was a th- considered a threat to myself and the state came and Oh, Baker acted. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So mm. the state came and put me in handcuffs in college. And then I had, was forced to go to, uh, these like therapy sessions, which I did not find helpful. And then, like I said, at some point I, I, I got, at some point I, something clicked. I said enough is enough. You know, like, like I said, I come from community. I know what it's like to have a loving community in the Quakers. They've been terrific. And mm-hmm. then on top of that, like actually being able to be more comfortable, like being out with my friends and things like that. Yeah. And this was a time too, when it was okay. I felt like it was okay to be out at school and I was mostly, but. May know. I ask how old you are? I'm 30 years old. Okay. It's interesting because, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm 36. And when I was in school, in high school, nobody was out, I got to say. And I was in school in New York and as a liberal environment as you can. Zero people were out. There was one girl who was, you know, she maybe she was bi, but, you know, it it kind of felt like the thing. It wasn't like a real dating or sexual. You know, it was like, you know, they she would hold hands with her straight female friend in class kind of a deal. And now she's married with like four kids, which doesn't mean that she's not bi, but that was as close as we got. And 
um, in college, my best friend didn't come out until like four years after we graduated, despite our intimacy. And so that's, it's just interesting to me that even someone just six years or so younger than me had a very different experience. And I'm very glad to hear that. I, I'm, I'm really struck by this idea that you were a kid and you wrote in a paper at school that you weren't a happy person and that that didn't trigger something more. And at the same time, I understand that teachers are very overwhelmed and, you know, underpaid. And, and I'm thinking about FD talking about his experiences as a teacher and how he was mostly at predominantly black schools and then spent a year at a white school and over his teaching career has had about six people uh, commit suicide who were students and the predominant, you know, the overall majority of them coming from that just one year at a white school and his feelings of kind of not necessarily guilt because he doesn't, he knows that kind of intellectually he's not responsible per se, but the feeling that he could have done more and should he have had more of a connection with these kids and why it is that there seemed to be in this particular school context so much of a certain kind of angst, a certain kind of depression that wasn't being met. And it's so dispiriting to hear. It's so dispiriting to hear that the difference between an outcome for you that would have ended in your death is that you happen not to be in from a gun owning household. And I don't know how people can hear that and hear how delightful you are and how rich your life has now become and not want to make that the case for everyone to not want to maximize the possibility that people are going to survive these horrible moments in their lives. Yeah. That and fund the school. They need, they need resources. They need psychologists, mm-hmm. they need therapists and they need intervention. Um, Cause there's all, so much abuse. Um, I, again, like I, I, I'm older now. And so I have perspective and I realize that it was a lot of people were, were suffering from various kinds of abuse that, you know, and intellectually or emotionally were not doing well and it was pretty obvious but yeah. you know there wasn't much done and that I, yeah. yeah go ahead i'm it sorry sucks. go ahead well no, yeah, it's I, just it's hard yeah. yeah i i'm i'm thinking of, yeah i'm thinking about my high school experience and i'm thinking about you know the kid <laughs> who people would have looked at and thought was going to be the kid um to do it and he was actually a friend of mine the thing that made him the kid was that he was quiet and shy and wore all black every day, all black, all the time, every day, and had a Palm Pilot back when nobody had that sort of thing. <laughs> he sounds cool. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, he's very cool now. Now he, like, works for NASA designing satellites, so he's fine. Um, but I I don't know. I'm just – I'm really glad you called in, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to talk to us because, look, it's a stigmatizing thing to say. And nobody really wants to hear it right now in the wake of these tragedies. But there is this real push to dehumanize the shooters because so many other kinds of perpetrators of crime who are black and brown and poor and they don't get any kind of sympathy from the press when things happen. And then every time there's a white, like a young white male shooter, the conservatives rush to say, oh, but, you know, it was just a mental health issue and he just needed more support. And so there is this knee-jerk instinct that some people on the left have to say, well, no, he was 18. He was a man. He was an adult. Instead of saying, well, actually, the treatment everybody should get is the treatment that the young white shooters should get, not the other way around. Uh, we should be expanding the – raising the standard, not lowering it so that it's equal across the board. And hearing you and, and the idea that – the Uvalde shooter or the Buffalo shooter could have grown and matured and been supported out of it and become a wonderful, lovely person. I mean, it's heartbreaking. And I, 
I do really appreciate the 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 re, repositioning that I'm doing right now, the refocusing on the idea of compassion and really seeing the full human being because I'm I'm getting the opportunity to talk to you and I just I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I to sort of resonating with what we've been talking about. You know, a big issue that I see is, is that I don't think that in America we treat children with very much dignity. Mm. Um, one of the things that always impressed me about the Quakers is that they treat children the same as they treat like adults. So when there's a marriage or something, children sign certificates. I remember when I was young, we had an auction and uh, they give the kids monopoly money to use as re- in place of real money so they could mm-hmm. participate. And when you go to school, it feels like your rights are zapped away. As I was leaving high school, they were taking away the free dress and instituting uniform policies and things. Mm. And it just feels like um, they're putting up chains around all of the school high schools in my uh, in my my old uh, town, and everything looks like a prison and hunkered down. And I I just think if we treated our children with more dignity, that I um, which means devoting the resources to them that they need. I, I think it would be an investment into the future that, and, and uh, you know, something that would pay itself back, uh, yeah. you know, a hundred times. So that's what I hope for, but that's yeah. a long road. To yeah. I think I'm going to sit with that for a while. I, I think that that feels very right. I mean, it feels very right. I am like, I feel like I'm getting hit with a thousand memories and instances and moments where we obviously don't do that and the ways that I, you know, have participated in that in my life. And it's, it's given me a lot to think about. And again, I just really appreciate you calling in tonight. Julia. Thanks. Bri. All right. I said I was going to wrap at 10 because I've got to pack and take, get an early flight to my 15 year reunion. Cause I'm long in the tooth. But I'm really enjoying this conversation and I got to take Eric because he was first in line and it feels especially cruel to just leave him hanging the whole time. Even though Eric Gray, you're, I call on you very often (laughs) and I am trying to make some space for some other people. Um, I'll try, I'll try to be quick then. Um, so, so just basically what we see with like, I know we talk about like patriarchy and, and male domination, all this stuff. A lot of this is a product of class society. A lot of it is just us, like, the idea of, of someone just dominating another. Hmm. And it's it's like, bro, that why do you think there's so many of us that are anti-capitalists? Because we see that this domination is not working. Clearly. Clearly seeing, like, there's a really good video. Um, uh, Marxist Paul did this. A video on mental health and class capitalism and how it's killing us. And I mean, it couldn't be more spot on. You just, we, we deny people health care. We do, we do health insurance instead of health care because mm-hmm. we're, because we're crazy. Mm-hmm. And we wonder, and in tandem with a nation that's, that's hyper capitalist, hyper individualist with still having still having a, a class society like we do and gee what could go wrong here so all i'm saying is that like we gotta we gotta do we gotta have a much better society than this and yes that does include overthrowing our capitalist system 
Yeah, I mean, what was so interesting about some of those dating episodes we've done is the kind of weird uneasiness, I think, especially with the women, uh, where it's like, is there a conflict between your left values and wanting a certain amount of financial stability and, and judging men along those lines? And I think a lot of the listeners said, well, we really appreciated um, James's take because James talked about how he himself um, was low income and struggled a lot with money and his partner was also poor. So the idea of like the question, would you date a poor person is completely anathema to him because like we're out here struggling together. And people contrasted that with some of the things the women said, which can sound really superficial and, you know, invested, you know, superficial. It is what it is. But, you know, it, I think that is worth thinking about. We do live in capitalism. We were talking earlier about everyone struggling to pay the rent and feeling like you need to get some, you know, that, that it's almost a necessity. Like that was the original point of marriage, right? With these like contracts to marry families together and keep money flowing and all of this kind of stuff. Upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey and whatnot. And it is, is it, you know, women being superficial and gold diggers and stuff, or is it them trying to just survive under capitalism? You know, it's a little A, it's a little B, it's difficult to parse out, but it's also difficult for me to look at one of those women and say, well, you shouldn't ask for all of that when we also live in a society that doesn't acculturate men to provide some of the emotional support and other non-monetary things that would be equally or more valuable in a relationship. I mean, at, at the end of the day, though, I mean, that's when it comes to when it comes to these relationships, I mean, obviously you would want love to be at the center of it or else it's just not going to mean anything. You're just two miserable ass people that are just trying to make sure the rent is paid. Yeah. But y'all aren't going to uh, be in love for a while. <laughs> you got to decide if you want to date the person first. I mean, I mean, you know? yeah, but you gotta, these you decisions be to, are being made on the front end. Yeah. But you got to be able to be around the person first. I mean, this can I be around you? That's the first thing. And you, you just let things progress naturally. And then, and then it is what, and then fall in love, you fall in love. It is what it is, blah, blah, blah. But, but really, I, I think, I think it has, I think at some point, like you're going to end up building a generation of like more generations of people, because obviously you got like, us like a lot of us is millennials and you got like was it jet x that's after us and you know that are all getting affected by all this all the bullshit like the oa crash and the, this covid shit and it's at so at some point like i, I guess is i guess i guess what i'm saying is that relationships are are just gonna change like what like, I, I I guess I'm looking at the significance of relationships changing. Like, what what do you mean relationships changing? You're saying over t- I, over over time the the what people are getting out of them is uh, different, or no, no, I'm just saying like because of the financial situation. I guess I'm just not thinking the worst for some reason, but I like. Because I'm seeing the the, because you know we're seeing like people's finances get get tighter and tighter. Everything's going up, 
like with gas and this dumb shit going on. Um, like, like I said, I guess I, I guess it goes back to some to the the greatest radicalizing force, and that's the real world itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at like how will this like really change generations oh like beyond ours you know how if relationships are going to be affected in the long term by the current crisis economic and health crisis that we're going through yeah and and, and i guess i'm kind of like trying to trying to like forecast ahead as to how how this would shape future generations i guess from saying going what the hell you dealt you guys dealt with this shit well, look, it's it's an interesting question. Let's let's put that let's put that to the group and kind of moot that a little bit. But thank thank you for calling in, Eric. Yeah, no problem. All right, take care. Uh, all right, Chase, this is an avatar I don't think I've seen before. Uh, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, Bree, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, of course. What you think about um, this evening? I guess first off, this whole conversation uh, between you and FD signifier and here in the chat has been really refreshing, I think. Um, Cause I, I, I don't hear a lot of um, left wing analysis of masculinity, which isn't kind of, I want to say maybe moralistic, mm. you know, which, which, um, and so it's, it's been really, it's been really cathartic to hear people be this vulnerable um, and open about, you know, their psychological issues and feelings of guilt and entitlement. And, you know, Lord knows I've experienced some of that myself, but, um, getting away from like, and, and there's also a part of me, <laughs> which, and like a, a small part of me, which can like feel the eye roll, uh, about all this. Cause it's like, uh, you know, there's a thousand horrible things in the world. So why are we centering like guys pain, you know? And, but I think politically it's probably important that we have these kinds of conversations because I'm really increasingly convinced that the crisis of masculinity and um, the crisis of the family sort of capital T capital F the family nuclear family is kind of at the beating heart of the political right right now. Mm. And um, I think there's a reason Josh Hawley focuses so much on, you know, blaming video games for making men suck now. And, you know, I wasn't, I'm I'm more and more convinced about this because between blaming uh, school doors for the Uvalde shooting, mm-hmm. uh, some people were blaming fatherlessness and the mm-hmm. breakup of the family. I don't know. You caught that as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the people I know who are on the political right have a kind of fetishized, magical understanding of uh, the nuclear family. And I think, I think it links a lot of their policies between CRT and the don't say gay policy. And my real fear with this is that, um, you know, we talk a lot about white supremacy on the left and, and things like that, but you know, I'm, I'm from Iowa and I'd say the more insipid kind of thing, I almost want to call it Christian nationalism 
um, and this fetishization of the family. So just as an example, I mean, I uh, live in an apartment complex and my neighbor is a 58 year old uh, black man. And he, he has, he has a young son who he's not letting go to public school because, uh, he, uh, because of gender ideology, basically. Um, mm. he's expressed to me openly that he, he doesn't like how schools are teaching young boys that they can be girls and things like that. Mm. And so I'm, my point of just bringing that up is, you know, I think, I think this focus on gender and masculinity and the family, I think it has, it's hitting a nerve with a lot of people and a lot of people who um, were, were probably, we would be surprised to know that it, it's yeah. hitting them. I mean, it, it does feel like there's a broader feeling that folks don't have control. Like they're out of, con- like they were trying to grasp for control over their lives. And it's interesting to me because if I were to ever have a child, 10 out of 10, there's a large amount of trepidation I would have about what they were learning in school. Not gender panic, <laughs> but basically mm-hmm. everything else. You know, I no, absolutely. I, I, I have a specific worldview. I am very well aware that it is very much not the mainstream worldview. I, I had a mother who I remember, I remember when I was young, I was playing in elementary school and my mother casually was telling a story, maybe not even to me, but I overheard about how her father told her she didn't have to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance if she didn't want to. And my grandfather was a nation of Islam, like radical, uh, who had, you know, his politics, which were lovely in some respects and extreme in others. And I, but I didn't know any of that at the time. I just remember going to school the next day and kind of sitting on the corner of my chair, half sitting, half standing, because it wasn't clear to me what was wrong with standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) But I knew that Papa, for some reason, said that I didn't have to if I didn't want to. But like, why wouldn't I want to? I was just so confused. But, you know, my mom was, you know, indoctrinated with a certain kind of worldview. And I got a little bit less of that. But there's always been work to undo what people learn in school and to put your own ideals on your kids. Everyone has always done that. And usually Mm -hmm. it has been people who are more progressive that had the uphill battle fighting against you know, the propaganda that happens in the classroom. And so I, on some level, empathize and understand with the, the idea that like, yeah, you want to raise your kids how you want to raise your kids. It's just so weird what people have, like the, how people who I think are broadly and have always been in the dominant hegemonic political sphere are the ones that are feeling so deeply victimized right now. And, mm-hmm. and I want to reckon with that. I, and I want to know what else is going on with people's lives where, Someone is willing to t- take on the commitment of homeschooling. That's huge. Instead of just telling their kid when they get home what they want their kid to believe. Like, I'm yeah. not going to not send my kid to school because I want them to be a socialist. I'll just come home and I'm confident in my ability to be more persuasive than their fourth grade teacher. Yeah. Well, I think I think maybe the um, uh, the key to understanding that is it's probably his wife taking on the commitment. And that kind of, mm. you know... I, I think that that kind of gets to the crux of the issue here, which is that, and you know, I'm, this is something I'm still trying to work out what I think of, mm-hmm. uh, but I think there is this real, uh, you know, um, it's interesting to watch someone like Charlie Kirk, who four or five years ago was basically just another like bow tie dipshit, mm-hmm. you know, um, libertarian Republican kind of person, but now all he talks about is you know, the family. And of course it's, it's that fake JD populism, uh, 
thing or JD Vance mm-hmm. populism thing, which mm-hmm. is it's all going to be cultural conservatism, um, you know, uh, wrapped up in a populist rhetoric and rhetoric, and it's probably not going to involve any kind of redistributive economic policy. Um, but it's, I think it really is tapping into some sort of strange anxiety about, um, the dissolution of the family or how hard it is to maintain a family, all of which is pretty real, mm-hmm. but it's not like any of their solu- you know, it's not like they have any real solutions to that. But at the same time, I don't know how, how good we talk about these issues on the left. Well, this is, this is part of my challenge over the last few days, because I, if, if Republicans want in this moment to talk about family stuff, okay, let's do it. Fine. I read an article a couple of days ago that said that raising the minimum wage has a direct effect on the divorce rate, meaning bringing it down. You want two-parent households? I have a plan for you. You standing there behind your podium on the front lawn of the White House or whatever saying parents should stay together isn't having the effect that you want. <laughs> so here's a policy <laughs> that could actually shift the numbers if you actually want to shift the numbers. You know, are you willing, and I said this in a radar last week, or maybe it was earlier this week, time blends together. You know, are you willing to do the redistributive policy, the social safety net policy that actually makes it easier for families to be together, for parents to be there when the kid gets home from school to survive on one parent's income? So one parent is always around and maybe they can homeschool if they want to homeschool. You know, are you willing to actually make families be able to make more choices, help ch- families to make more choices? No. The conservatives, I, I again, this this politician that I was arguing with today, I asked him about child care costs because he was saying inflation is a problem because people don't want to work and did it. I said, well, some people don't want to work because the minimum wage salary pays you less than what child care costs. So how do you feel about raising, uh, offering, you know, child tax credits or other incentives, you know, to bring down the cost of child care? He says, well, Biden... It's Biden's fault that child care is high, which, you know, fine. Who cares? What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah. um, and again, like uh, there's all this focus on the family and the family's family, but very infrequently people willing to actually do the thing. And so if I were a Democrat, if I were advising the Democratic Party, I would not let Republicans own the idea that they're the party of family values. I would really push them on why they don't support policies that support families. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Um both as a as the right policy and also just rhetorically, I think that's powerful. But what's odd to me is, and I guess this is where I come back to the kind of Christian nationalism, or what I see as Christian nationalism component of this, which is, I think for a lot of these um, right wing populists, maybe especially the movement conservative types, the causality is kind of the other way around. So they think that if we can just, you know. Uh, revitalize the values what they think of as the values that keep families together or use the state to coerce people into the nuclear family which i think is something we're seeing a little bit more of every day mm-hmm. um then, i feel coerced i'm not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think they think of that as like the beloved community and as soon as we do that like i don't know inflation will go down or something yeah, it's like what we we're saying before, Like, it should not be that you feel like I got to get a partner so I can have an apartment. It should be actually right. a free choice. It should not be that like the idea of me ever owning a house is contingent on who I marry. You know, it, it like it just should not be. And I, yeah. I was thinking about um, my mom, you know, she just moved to Cleveland and they bought this house and she's so excited to like leave us this house. And she is, you know, 
you know, I wanted to be able to leave you guys something because intergenerational wealth is so important. And there's so much, there are all these ways that people are pressured to invest in real estate as a way to make money. <laughs> like you yeah. basically have to. Um, I saw someone who I like on the internet the other day, um, a, one of the newscasters over at um, uh, one of I almost said 106 in Park, dating myself. Um, hot, whatever. Um, Charlemagne's show, uh, Breakfast Club, on the, for the Breakfast mm-hmm. Club. And she was talking about how she bought her first house and she was going to rent it out as an Airbnb. And I was like, like, first of all, I just can't believe you tweeted that out loud, given all the heat Airbnbs under right now. There's like more Airbnbs for rent than rent in New York. And it's a, a contributor to these rising rents and stuff. And I kind of quote tweeted it and you know, made that point. And then I deleted it because I felt kind of guilty because it, it isn't on her as an individual who's in this system where everyone knows you can only create wealth through real estate. Like, it's not about me dragging this one person, right. Who's made this choice that like I find ethically suspect, but it's because we live in a whole society that tells all of us, the only way we can have financial stability and make it is to invest in real estate, invest in real estate, buy a property, have a family, all of these things. They've made it almost impossible to get by unless you just hit the jackpot without doing those kinds of things. Yeah, um, absolutely. There was a, there was a book uh, written a couple of years back called birth strike. I forget the name of the, um, the author, but um, in that book, they made a really interesting case, which is, you know, at least in the 1950s, you, there was at least the possibility for some segment of the uh, population to have like a, a family sustaining wage, Mm-hmm. Um, because of, you know, post-war Keynesianism and strong unionization and, mm-hmm. you know, all those good things. And, you know, uh, now, you know, I mean, especially with, you know, Roe being ended, which is its own can of worms, um, basically we're coercing people into situations where, you know, both parents have to work and God knows who's actually like where the child care and the um, social reproductive labor is going to come from. I mean, probably still, probably still women, unfortunately, but you know, it's just how much can the average person take um, in in these situations? So um, let me tell you what I, I have, I have come to the realization that I am just going to be the wage earner in any dynamic that I'm in. And so I'm shopping for, caregivers (laughs) i'm dating for caregiving capacity are you really good with your dog come round, gather around the fire my lad (laughs) you're you're in the running you know are you are you good with a like a frying pan and some uh spring onions (laughs) come 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 in let's let's sit down let's have a talk let's see if we can work something out between us here you know are you are you administratively competent and you're good at organizing bills and you can get my taxes filed without me getting a six month extension every single time. (laughs) All right, come into my life. Let's swipe right. Let's have a conversation (laughs) because you know, that that's the thing. Like you cannot do all of these things by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just, I mean, that's one part of, you know, and it's something I've been coming to terms with personally in relationships is how much less, uh, romantic sentiment is involved and how much more just like mutual aid 
<laughs> like work, <laughs> you know, like, like relationships are work in like the most literal sense. It's labor. Yeah. You're going to be burning calories doing things for somebody else, and you know, finding someone who you're compatible with in that sense uh, is, yeah. is really important. Well, my single best friend and I joke that like she, like I need to earn enough money to pay her to be my wife. Like that's that's kind of what we're working <laughs> at. Like, can I make enough that I can pay her a salary to come and be my basically assistant? and set up a merch store and handle my emails and run social media accounts and do all those things. Cause she's basically doing that for like the governor of Massachusetts. Anyway, come do that for me. It's a little bit of a waste of your Wharton MBA, but come on over. <laughs> Let's do it because we both kind of realize like you just need help. Someone has to return the package. You know, someone has to buy the toilet paper. Someone has to water the plants. Somebody, somebody has to do all of these things. And I found myself sometimes feeling guilty when I have like coworkers or people around me that have kids and it's like, they're so busy and they obviously have so much on their plate. And I'm like, okay, then I should step up and do the thing that needs to be done. Cause I'm single. But then sometimes yeah. I think also though, they've got a buddy. <laughs> <laughs> like they literally have one other, sometimes someone else in their house buys groceries or orders dinner. Sometimes, sometimes someone else in their house cleans the bathroom. Sometimes someone else in their house makes a bed. Sometimes someone else in their house unloads a dishwasher. In my house, <laughs> there's only one person that is doing any of these things ever, which is why, as I mentioned earlier, I'm looking at an unmade bed. <laughs> you and me both. Do you remember like the promise of like the Roomba and there was like this brief hope that robots would basically replace the uh, like <laughs> all the domestic labor involved in life. Right. And uh, you know, I, uh, boy, well, there's, this, there's this book that we read in history of science and I'm sure everyone knows it and I'm just forgetting the name, but it's about how um, with industrialization and modernity and all these new gadgets for the house, a lot of, work that was traditionally actually done outside of the home. Like women used to, families used to send laundry out to laundresses and there wasn't the same expectation that you would have a different dinner every day. You'd pick cook in a big cauldron and basically meet it out over the next few days. You know, with before refrigerators, people did used to eat at canteens and things more public spaces where they didn't have to worry about food refrigeration refrigeration because they were serving large groups of people. And that technology basically forced all of this labor back inside of the home and put all this burden on women that actually was not historically common. Like it was not historically that women were doing all these things. It got worse for us. <laughs> That's um, really interesting. And I've, I've been thinking about this as I took out my recycling today and threw out an unholy number of sweet green delivery bags. <laughs> How I'm basically doing that, like I just decided, like I'm busy. You guys have heard me. I'm like stressed. I'm just gonna order this freaking salad so I don't, you know, eat something that I shouldn't be eating, and it's just there for me, and it's like an instinct. That like it's, uh, yeah. it's basically that. Like I need a meal plan service. I need a laundry service. Like I, I feel like to to function, you gotta just start ex externalizing these things. And then like, what does that mean about society? Like sh we need to be able to, we need to have a system where we're valuing all of this labor. That we're professionalizing and outsourcing. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I'm literally staring at four empty HelloFresh boxes that are sitting <laughs> on my floor. <laughs> yeah, so I, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah, no, it is it is a strange feature of um this era of capitalism, which just more and more of what used to be um, you know, social reproductive labor has been commodified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so 
um, you know, what used to be, I guess, just people making food now is, is DoorDash, you know, in our lives. And, yeah. and nobody can blame you for using that when you're tired all the time and don't want to cook for yourself, you know? I mean, like, yeah, we're but, all... Yeah, then you don't want it to be exploitative. I don't want it to be me making DoorDash right. people run around the city. Like, that's the thing. It's all forcing us into these unethical situations. By the way, I think the book I'm thinking of might be The Second Shift. Someone asked in the chat. It might be The Second Shift. Arlie Hochschild? Hochschild? Is that her name? Yes. Look at you. Arlie (laughs) Russell Hochschild. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I know that. I spend too much time on Wikipedia at 3 a.m. Chase, I I see you, Chase. (laughs) (laughs) I will will let you go because I know other people want to get in here, but thank you for taking my call. No, I appreciate you, Chase. Thanks for calling in. Okay, I'm going to be – we're like rounding the cul-de-sac – toward the end here so don't be surprised if i stop before 11 because i have to do a quick run and then i've got a pack and then i have a nine o'clock flight i'm saying this for my benefit to focus myself and my attention deficit issues not because you know or care you need to know or care about any of that (laughs) um but i am loving first of all how many people are in the chat and and how many new faces i'm seeing in the queue I am like really here for all of that. So I'm going to go with T. Not, not to, like, I see you, Rika, like a part of me really wants to call on you. I see you, Jonathan, like you're always holding me down. I see you, Bells, like, believe me. I know there's good people who bring me good conversations in the chat and it's hard for me sometimes to resist. Moetti, I see you. I see you, but I got to, I got to spread it around a little bit today. Be, by, bide, I see you. Fayola, I see you. But T. Let us know what's on your mind this evening. Hey, Bri, how's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. I was just calling because I saw the interview with FD. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really good. I had a question. You made a comment about uh, beauty standards was created by men. Ooh, T, you started out so well and then you started glitching. You said I had a comment about... <clears throat> can you hear me now? I can, yes. You made a comment uh, to FD about uh, beauty standards was created by men uh, mm-hmm. for women. And I, I want to give a little pushback. It's like, isn't the beauty standard created by women? For women? Yeah. The beauty standard for women was created by women. I know you're saying like the example you gave was like women being skinny. That's something that men look forward to. But, you know, I feel like uh, men typically don't go for skinny women and, and did I say skinny? Cause that's not a word that I feel like would come out of my mouth. Slim thin. I mean, I think that society at large values people who are slender in shape, whatever that means for folks. Slender in shape. Well, I don't, yes. I know. I, I don't I feel... I think that, I think that there are differences between what men and women want for sure. In terms of aesthetics, I think that women I'm, I just purchased a, extremely cartoonish puffy sleeve shirt that the guy I'm seeing thinks is hideous, but it's a hundred percent a shirt for girls to admire, (laughs) you know, for sure. That is the thing. Um, but that's just two categories overlapping, but not concentric circles of aesthetic preferences. Okay. I I was just, you know, I felt like it was like, I had this conversation with my um, friends, my lady friends as well. They always say that the standard of beauty for women is placed on by men. And I usually say, well, I don't think men are that picky when it comes to dating women. I feel like the the standard comes with women competing with other women. 
if that makes sense. Mm, uh, let's get some women in the chat because I don't want to be the be all end all for this one. I can tell you that I, part of this is that I'm older now, but I almost never feel competitive with other women. Almost Not never. First never. of all, where are these other women? I live in a house. I'm living in COVID. Like, who am I even <laughs> comparing myself to right now? Well, are you, you, you say you buy magazines and you're competing on what's on social media. I don't think that. about those people. I'm 37 almost. I, 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 and I'm not saying, I don't want you to dismiss it. I know that people are doing scrolling and they see Instagram models and all that kind of stuff and they get in their feelings. I think you're right, right on a certain level. I'm old enough to know that men are attracted to lots of things and are not right. noticing the things that women notice about ourselves. And like, I've never been that type. I've never been that type. Like, oh, I haven't got to turn the lights off because of my super. Like, I've never you, been that type. Do you feel like you're in the minority when it comes to that? Like majority of women feel the opposite of. Maybe, that? but I also know that I benefit from conforming in a lot of ways to what, you know, beauty standards are in some respects. You know what I mean? So I've, I've always been athletic. I've never mm -hmm. felt overweight. You know, you know, I want to lose five or 10 pounds or something like, but I've never, I've never felt overweight. Um, you know, I've never felt like, you know, the, the kind of guys that I wanted to get were like so out of reach. Right. You know, I've never felt like, oh, this guy that I have a huge crush on could never like me because of my looks. So, so, you know, generally speaking, you know, since like high school. Okay. So, you so I, but I know that I, I'm just saying, I, I know that there's a certain amount of privilege there that I'm, that I'm speaking from. But that's why so, I don't so, want to be the be all end all. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was so you feel like this I the the beauty standard that's for women is by the competitiveness of other women, not by the men who are choosing you or picking you or not. So it just feels like <laughs> Well, I think it's also that even when you describe it as comparing yourself to other women, it's not like I hate Jessica. I want to be better looking than Jessica. It's I think I need to be more attracted than Jessica to get Tom's Tom's attention. It's not even about Jessica. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think it is about Jessica <laughs> because it's because you can whatever quality you have, I believe most men will go for your quality as is it compared to Jessica's going to have her set of group of men that's attracted to her. You're going to have a set of uh, of men that's attracted to you. But if you want Pacific, if you want to point out to a Pacific value man that you both like, then you now competing with each other. Like I have to look better than Jessica to get that Pacific man. Does that make um, sense? Well, I think there is a kind of guy that feels like in a kind of woman, there's people of all types that feel like their dating preferences are really about how much public approval they're going to get from having a person on their arm. I think there is a definite mm -hmm. type of person who really is seeking a certain amount of social approval from their dates and mm -hmm. therefore is more inclined to be wanting to constantly level up and compare and, and get someone who just superficially looks better. That definitely exists. I, definitely, I have definitely felt as though, particularly I got to say, as a darker skinned, you know, kinkier haired black woman dating black men, I have often felt 
that the reason that a guy maybe doesn't see me as a long-term prospect or seem to be wanting to invest in me. And then I turn around and the next day that they're engaged to some light skinned, straight haired biracial girl or something. <laughs> but sometimes, and, and this is maybe a toxic thought that isn't true and based in reality and maybe I'm projecting and it's not fair, but sometimes I feel like some of the black guys I've dated have some value. They see that person as being a high social value person in a way that I wasn't just because of how I looked and no matter how, charming I was or funny or warm or smart or successful or anything like that, that didn't really militate the same way that like the prospect of having a light skinned baby was ever gonna, you know, be. Yeah. I understand you for your situation. You're saying more directed towards uh, maybe colorism, but I mean, this is an example, but other people have other things other, you know? Yeah. I, I agree with that in some, some extent, but I, I still feel like you still have, uh, there's still a set value men that value your dark skin, intelligence, and your hair. And, and I don't know if maybe you overlooking that. No, there are some. And that's why when I get, catch evidence that the kind of guy I'm dealing with is the kind of guy that would value somebody's complexion, despite them being otherwise unremarkable over me, I'm a Leo. I don't respect you anymore. And I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> I don't, I like, it's never my self-esteem. If it's my self-esteem versus your stupid preferences, I'm choosing my self-esteem 100% of the time where I'm, gotcha. I'm out. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. You know, that's, but, but that's my, that's just my disposition. I know other people are not like that. I'm not going to say it's not frustrating if I like some guy a lot and he's, you know, but I don't find myself lingering for them because it's just, I, I feel so disrespected by it. I just feel like it's like, you are not a person that I value now because your values are so out of step with my own. It's do kind you of believe, how my mind works. Yeah. Do you believe the man of spirit is skewing that perspective towards men where they are um, looking towards women, maybe out, outclass them and maybe having a, maybe a, a narrow view of how women should look or the beautification of it, of women? So here's a controversial take. Uh, because I think society puts more value on women's looks than men's looks. Mm -hmm. I think there are more women who are conventionally attractive than there are men. Now let me explain myself. (laughs) (laughs) We're not, I don't think that like more attractive women are born than men, like into the world, like on the doctor's table. But I think That because of the pressures that women are under, like when you're swiping the apps, like when I swipe and look at girls, you know, the women are all, we've got cute outfits on, they've got makeup on, you know, there's the filter world, like everyone looks presentable. Like, even if they're not your type, they're like attractive, they're out taking pictures on vacation, they look sociable, they have friends, they look nice. When you're swiping through the men, oh, also there's a lot of pressure for the women to like, be in shape. And, you know, even if you're like a curvier woman, like you've got your little waistline situation cinched in a cute, like flattering outfit, like women know how to make it work, like how to present themselves at our best. We know Mm -hmm. what works for us. When you swipe through the men, like you're, it's a constant process of what can I do? Like, how can I mold this? (laughs) (laughs) Can I chisel David out of this lump of rock? (laughs) Like you're looking past the, okay, I'm trying not to see the pubic hairs on his deodorant on the counter in this bathroom selfie. And I'm, I'm trying to ignore these like 
awful tevas that he's wearing and everything like it is what, like i'm not i'm not saying i'm not a i don't have my superficial proclivities okay but you're mm-hmm. you're constantly like okay making excuses and trying to see what can work okay he could get a lineup and this could be fixed and like like that's that's what it is because society is not like i i would never put a photo on the apps the way some of these men just be throwing up but they'll put three of the same photo it's like you obviously stood there and took three selfies like one after another and they're all slightly different and you felt that uh, the world really needed to see but why would you, slightly you? different because that's insane <laughs> no, well what i'm saying is what i'm saying is like is if you if you just you know put up a picture where you're like no makeup and nothing like that like do you feel like no man is still not gonna try to talk well, to, yes, you, be because, to you because all of the other women are have makeup on and absolutely 100 percent. i know on the apps you have to put a full body photo it's uh-huh. preferable if you have like a swim foot, like, cause that's what it is. Like you have to, if you don't, it seems suspicious almost. What is she hiding? You know? Cause you, you know, you're in a marketplace with other kinds of people. So yeah, it is about that. Now it, it has been my experience that I will think, oh, I don't look good without makeup. You know, I still struggle with my skin and I have blemishes and I, and you know, hyperpigmentation and I will not like not be wanting to take my makeup off at the end of the day until I'm done, done. Like I'm sitting here with makeup on from this morning, but do you feel for no like, reason? I I question. I, what I'm, what no, no, I'm but, saying, but wait, sorry. You, but let me let me let me finish. I okay. I know from experience, however, that men don't feel that way, and they're like, "Why aren't you taking your makeup off? This is stupid." Like exactly. they're you know, and so yeah. they can say what they want to say. But that is, but it is also true is that I am not going to have a good time with you if I'm sitting here feeling insecure and unattractive, separate and apart from whatever you think. It's very sweet that you seem to think that I look good without makeup. I like that for us because there are going to be times when I'm not wearing makeup when we're at the beach or in the morning or whatever, but also I don't see my, you know, I, my issue, my insecurity issue is going to be more about something like my skin. So my going back to my original point that mm-hmm. the beauty standard for women is not by men it's for your, like you say, women insecurities or what is competitive between other women, like men don't set that standard. But I don't see that as about other, I'm not sitting in my house saying, oh my God, I've got this acne scar and Jessica has clear skin somewhere out in the world and that's going to be my issue. No, it's that I live in, (laughs) well, no, I'm saying it's not, I'm just, I really resist the idea that's about other women. It's like, I, I want, I know that I have the capacity to look better to me. (laughs) Like I have the capacity to not have raccoon eyes and hyperpigmentation. (laughs) So why wouldn't I just not have raccoon eyes and hyperpigmentation. It's not that hard. Just throw a little BB cream on and we're rocking and rolling. (laughs) All right. Well, well, that was my only um, question for you. I, I I did a lot of uh, uh, friends or female friends around me always talk about, you know, it's hard to stay beautiful in these men's standards. And I'm like, well, it's not men's. I know they, they date all type type of women and, you know, and it's, it's okay. It's okay with going a week without makeup or, or anything like that. So, okay, I appreciate that, but I need to address some things in the chat. First of all, McCube thinks I need to date a Nigerian man. I would like to point out that it was a West African man who played me for this biracial chick. So check yourself. <laughs> Second, secondly, <laughs> secondly, some somebody says um, uh, men don't care about makeup. Incorrect. Men are often, when they know you and they meet you and they like you, they'll say, okay, I don't care about you look like you without makeup. However, nine out of 10 times, if, if you ask a man, okay, what, do, which one of these looks do you like? They will point to someone who has minimalistic makeup on. Mm-hmm. 
and they don't know that that's makeup. And they're like, JLo looks so great without makeup. And it's like, no, you man, you, said, you, you said just said have not a 10. No, yeah, nine out of ten times men have no idea what is makeup and what is not. And when they say they don't like makeup, they don't like a full heavy face of night glamour with lashes and stuff. But they see Actually, someone that is wearing day-to-day makeup and they're like, oh, she looks so fresh and pretty and natural. And it's like she's got a ton of makeup on to look like that. And men just don't have a clue. I actually disagree with that. I think men know what makeup and natural beauty I, is. I promise you they don't. <laughs> okay. None of you do. Like, <laughs> none of you do. We it's do. hilarious. I, 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 I can tell. I can tell natural beauty and, you know, the blemishes that come through. And I can tell, like, the, the, the light makeup on. And I think most men are okay with no makeup. I mean, if, you're, if you've been married past five years, you know what a, a woman naturally looked like, you know. So it's, Okay, so I wanted to end this, but now you are forcing me to bring a woman <laughs> up to corroborate everything that I'm saying to you. Thank you okay. for calling in. You've got us, you've got us standing on a spicy note. Okay. All right. Which one of you is going to back me up right now is what I want to know. Which one of you? Fayola? <laughs> Fayola, back me up, girl. Or don't. Like, you can have your own opinion, obviously. <laughs> oh, sorry. I made you a speaker by accident. But just unmute yourself. Fayola, are you still here? Okay, while you're figuring your stuff out, I'm bringing Rika up. Rika, wait a minute. Oops, did I unmute myself? No, you're good, Fayola. Speak your truth. Rika, we're, we're going to have a group. We're going to have a little group conversation. Yeah. Men what do you think? do not know when you have one makeup. Thank you know how you. many times I have been told how, why couldn't people look more like you with no makeup? And right. I have spent 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> Right. To look. <laughs> you guys like don't know. No you guys don't know. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I don't have low self-esteem about it. It is what it is. We all have our high points and our low points. Nobody's like blessed top to bottom. But yeah. like, th- this is not a great. <laughs> no. I mean, I've invested in many, many creams and potions, and I don't eat gluten and dairy, and it's a lot better than it was like ten years ago. But yeah. like, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that there's a significant difference. Makeup, not like foundation, no foundation. Yeah, yeah they, they don't know, but they feel they think they know. They think they and know because, because I, uh, women like me, allow them to believe that my no makeup makeup is no makeup. <laughs> it's your they fault. Really, <laughs> they really believe. <laughs> I can tell. I'm the one person who can tell. Mm-mm. They don't they know don't. until I've left brown marks all over their shirt or their pillowcase right. or whatever. That's how they find out. <laughs> That's how you're going to learn when I've messed up your laundry <laughs> with my foundation. Men, exactly. men stay trying to have white sheets. Who told you to have white sheets? Right. Sorry. They will, like, know, they will know when I wake up the next day and I, I, I take it all off. That's when right. they know. Right, right, right. Okay, Rika, weigh in. Weigh in. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't, I don't date straight men, so mm. I, I don't really have. Well, God to bless worry you. About, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but my experience of having conversations with straight men, I would definitely agree that they tend not to understand what um, makeup anything really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. This is supposed to be a conversation about supporting men and helping them not feel isolated. And here I go. I'm sorry. I, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's great. I, I've, I've been living for it. I, I think you've also had a lot of incredible, like, I'm just impressed by the patience you have, I think, for some of the things that come out of your 
um, uh, about men and, and their needs or wants or thoughts. So, yeah. yeah. Look, I love, look, I'm a humanist. I love the idea. I was never really raised in any kind of religious tradition, but my mother always did love Quakers and tried to put me in a Quaker school once. So, you know, that, that really resonated with me, you know, like a little monastery situation. I just love the idea and practicing that muscle of, you know, responding to something with compassion, which, you know, is not easy and I'm not always successful at. I almost, let me tell you, I almost lost my job over this uh, representative today. <laughs> I was like, someone's going to have to hold me back if he says one more thing about how we can't raise the minimum wage. Someone's going to hold me back. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question? I don't know if yes, you went into the chat. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're, since you did have that, 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 we will speak about Johnny Depp, Amber Hood, if we must. Sure. Let's do it. You got, you got, oh, let's Lord. close out I'm these out. last five I'm minutes. Sorry, Rika. Well, Rika, did you want to say anything, something before you bounced? Did you want to make a point before you bounce? Um, I just, the only thing I wanted to say, I think, was just in your um, next dating episode, um, it, which I hope you do because I live, live for the conversation. If you could get some representation for some, um, some more, some more queer, queer folk up in there yes. and, and more trans folk, I'd appreciate that. A hundred percent. You want to come on? Uh, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. That's a lot. That's a, I like the call-in feature because, you know, it's like, you know, it's, I don't know, it's like a, a talk show, radio kind of thing, but mm-hmm. getting like a whole ass video recording of myself on something, that would be a lot. That would be a lot for me. Okay. So also, I just want to say in my defense, Kate Willett is by from the girl one. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I know you had, I know you had, you had queer And, people, and James I, is gay. Yeah, no, 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 no. You did, you did. No, I, but it's okay. I'm not gonna lie. There was just like okay with the, with the men on that episode. I was like, I know. God, this is so painfully heterosexual. Like it was I just know. so I know. bad. And like he, he was doing his damnedest to be like as a gay man. I was like, oh, honey, but we he need, was, we need more. Bring more to this. And he was know, the so. most kind of insightful one too. I was like, but this is what we're dealing with with straight men. Like this is what it. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, straight men. I'm sorry. Like we all we're all just struggling. <laughs> We're all just trying to understand each other. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But they were like, go ahead, go in on the whole Johnny Depp thing. I'm going to ask the question. I'm sorry. I know it's it's been rough. But the whole um, discussion about the manosphere Mm -hmm. had me thinking, not so much about the verdict or the trial or whatever, but about the reaction it has had. Mm -hmm. Mainly a blue check Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that blue check Twitter is very much hair on fire. This is going to end the Me Too movement. I think I saw something about First Amendment is, is in the dustbin now. Mm-hmm. Um, like people, people are really out here telling everyone that if you agree with the jury's decision, you know, you're on the side with the manosphere, <laughs> and mm-hmm. right wing and i'm just i'm just wondering and a lot of these people admit they have not watched the trial mm-hmm. so i'm wondering your take on it and whether or not you 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 think so much uh credence can be given to a single trial about two deeply troubled human beings do you think it's going to have such a far-reaching effect so i also did not watch the trial so that's my caveat right, i right. put out some feelers last night on twitter to get a sense of what you know, the, my followers thought 
who watched it and what their impressions were. And I'm going to take everything they said at face value. If it later turns out to be wrong, it's not my fault. For the sake of this conversation, <laughs> I'm taking what they said at face value. And what they said is what many people have said is that Amber Heard came off as really not credible, and disingenuous right. on the stand. Yeah. Um, and that, okay. So that, that all being said, I completely believe that let's just say for the sake of conversation, she's a very bad person who lies a lot. Let's right. just grant that. Yeah. My, my problem is as I understand the law and I'm working on getting someone to cut like an actual lawyer who does this kind of law to come on and have a conversation with us about it. Um, <clears throat> like a first minute lawyer, you know, defamation lawyer, mm-hmm. the, as I understand it, the standard for proving defamation is extremely high, particularly when a public, uh, a right. public figure is at, at, at issue. That's right. mm-hmm. And when you look at the charges, like this, the specific statements that he, Johnny Depp had to prove were not false. Like that were, you know, all mm. so the truth is a defense to a defamation claim. If Amber Heard proves that there's any truth, any truth, that she can hang any of those statements on, then she's good. Like the defamation cha- cha- uh, right. claim fails. So it really isn't about whether Amber Heard has done anything wrong, which I'm completely willing to concede that she has, but whether right. anything in the trial points to the idea that Johnny Depp could be characterized as he was characterized anonymously, but kind of obviously characterized in that uh, Wall yeah. Street Journal article as in an abusive relationship or what was it? Um, right. A, do- a domestic abuse, domestic ab- abuse. Yeah. Right. So I, I mean, I watched really embarrassingly amount of that trial, right? Like I watched <laughs> a lot of mm-hmm. it and what I got, I, the, the, I think both sides mm-hmm. understood how not credible Amber was. So you mm-hmm. had her lawyer saying exactly what you just said. If you believe even one time mm-hmm. he abused her, she must win. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. his argument. That was his closing. And then on the other side, um, Johnny Depp's closing was you believe all of it or you believe none of right. it. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I, I would find it hard for that jury, if they believed Camille Vasquez when she said if you had to believe all of it or none of it, I would find it hard not to um not to go the way they did. Right. right. I think believe all of it or none of it is not a good legal reading of what the jury should have been deciding to decide right. if this defamation claim should stand. And I think yeah. that there was quite obviously negligence on behalf of Amber Heard's attorney, because what I've heard from the Internet, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is that she did not really emphasize the idea of emotional or verbal abuse. And therefore, right. everything no. hung on these really dramatic physical. instances of yep. physical abuse, which yeah. were not yeah. so well substantiated in the context of this yes. trial, especially since there were these credibility issues with Amber Heard's testimony. Yes. So she basically oversold her case, which then made the easier, subtle case of, I mean, abusive relationship. Everybody's in an abusive relationship. I mean, like, right. t- show me show me two people who got divorced that wouldn't characterize <laughs> some moment of the thing as being in an abusive domestic situation. Right. You know? Right. And so, to be yeah, fair, in the early part of the trial, that is where her lawyers were going. They were like, they were, they had expanded the, um, the definition of abuse very wide. So they mm-hmm. had said, you know, emotional abuse, hitting objects mm-hmm. near the person, um, you know, nasty texts. They had expanded 
the abuse definition very wide. Mm -hmm. So honestly, looking on at it as a layperson, I was like, well, all right, yeah, he definitely Mm -hmm. abused her. So if if we're talking emotional abuse, she wins. The end of trial, can we end now? Right. But at some point, it turned to having the jury believe these really heinous physical acts Mm -hmm. that I think kind of stretched their credibility, their their Mm -hmm. suspension of disbelief a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. it, it it became too heinous for Mm -hmm. the um, supporting evidence that she had. Mm -hmm. So I I think had they stuck to their original or what I thought was their original tact of why definition of abuse Except she would have still lost on the on the um headline because the headline was specifically said sexual violence or whatever. Although I will say that when you read the article, the first paragraph or two is about her experiencing physical violence before the time she got to college, which is obviously not Johnny Depp. And then yeah. when she brings up Johnny Depp, it's two years ago I was you know, I became the spokesperson for domestic violence or domestic yeah. abuse. Yeah. So those so are they, separate things. So the title could be referring to the earlier physical violence and not Johnny Depp, I would argue. Said, nah, except she said that um, she faced the culture's wrath. So she didn't face the culture's wrath before Johnny Depp. Yeah, but this, this is, people have been saying this, and this is my issue. This, this defamation claim is about a specific statement. People are like, well, everybody two years ago knew that Johnny Depp was being accused of physical violence, and she made these statements you know, suggesting at the courthouse with photos that Johnny Depp had hit her. Okay. Then sue her over those statements. Sue her. She said Johnny Depp hit her. Sue her over her saying that Johnny Depp hit her, but you can't sue. This is, this is why I do think that there are first amendment implications. And I said this in my, in my radar earlier today, Mm -hmm. if you are going to make the beef, this ACLU article, okay. I completely agree with you with the impropriety of the ACLU getting involved in all of that. I'm not fighting any of that, Mm -hmm. but what was actually written in that, article to me the implication is if i'm a human being and i ref- I've, look i'm a i'm a little bit of a public figure if i casually say oh yeah my ex-fiance and well let me not use him specifically because i'm not trying to get in trouble some guy i dated <laughs> some guy i dated oh yeah i'm so glad that ended it was an abusive relationship mm-hmm. this is how this is how girls be talking like that yeah. it's a broad expansive term okay it doesn't necessarily mean physical violence or anything maybe he was just like an asshole okay mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. whether or not we should be talking that way fine but that's how people talk yeah and if if i say that as a public figure and jethro comes through talking about brianna why are you talking shit about me i'm defamed i right. got fired from my job at you know, whatever bank, because you said that I was abusive and everybody knows you and everybody knows I was dating you at that time. Now I'm liable to be sued for just saying my subjective perception of the truth. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I mean, that's, I, that, to me, that's messed up. Like, that's a little messed up. Like, if it's if not it, the truth. If it's but not to, the but truth. to me, it's the truth. To me, it's the truth. If I had some partner, you know, like, look, look at the things that are being alleged. If I had some partner that threw a phone at me, has happened. Right. <laughs> if I had some partner who, you know, yelled at me and called me a, I know the texts were not to her. Please don't come at me, yeah. penance. And I know it happened before all of the trial incidents. I read the article. Okay. But <laughs> like, if someone was referring to me, if, if you refer to someone as a 
cunt bitch or whatever and talked about how much you right. wish like we're thinking about their corpse odds yeah. are that's not a one-off thing come on right. come right. on now like the guy obviously has his own substance abuse issues i'm not trying to come at him for that but like if he's the first friendly drunk in the world, God bless him. But like yeah. reading between the lines, I'm not, does it not, to me, does not strain credulity that he at times was abusive to her, at least verbally and emotionally. And yeah. she was hella abusive to him verbally, emotionally, and physically. All of that is obviously true. Yes. Right. So the idea that she, even if she's more in the wrong, a thousand and ten percent for her to not be able to say, Hey, I was, I was in a domestic abusive domestic situation. That seems to me ridiculous. She should be able to say I was in an abusive domestic situation. She should be able to say Johnny Depp hit me. Maybe not. But he didn't sue her over saying Johnny Depp hit me. And all yeah. of the idea of it being the implications of what's read through the line, uh, through the between the lines and what we read into it based on what happened two years ago. I, I think that's really wishy-washy. And I don't even understand why his lawyer would choose to bring the case only on these what seemed to me to be really vague statements when apparently well, I, there was I all this meat from two years ago. This is this is what I think. I think that he the he did not I really blame the son. <laughs> I think that mm. he he it, he did not um cuz as you you correctly said the TRO came out whatever. Mm. He mm. never he didn't he didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean tapes show him afterwards talking to her. Mm-hmm. saying you know why you put that abuse thing out there we have mm-hmm. to come out with a joint statement saying that didn't happen i mean come on what are you doing me right mm-hmm. and she was like no i can't what i will do to my credibility right mm-hmm. so that was on a tape obviously the jury did not hear that one right obviously so this is just mm-hmm. us knowing from the internet <laughs> mm-hmm. right so that didn't happen but when the son came out and called him a wife beater Mm-hmm. I think that was a wrap. I think that that's and I get the all of that. I get all of that. Things. But, but so here's at the what thing. point? At what point mm-hmm. does the person? Because both of them have their truths, right? You're saying right. she believes it, so she should be able to say it. So if he believes he's not an abuser, mm-hmm. shouldn't he be able to say, "Nah, you can't call me an abuser. I'm not." Yeah, you can say that. You have your free speech right to say, I'm not an abuser. I promise you, every day I log onto the internet and a bunch of people have said some dumb shit about me. I promise (laughs) you that. Read the comments under any... Any, I I am best friends with Tucker Carlson. Right. So I, I carry water for every kind of person in the world. I'm the I'm making a career pivot to be on the right and be the next Candace Owens. Yeah. You know, I saw someone like completely take like mischaracterize a position in the exact opposite of the thing I said today in a way that made me really effing crazy. Because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just a lie. It was like that's like I've literally made the exact opposite argument, and you're just clearly not paying attention. If we were able to sue everybody over every misstatement they made of us. In the world, and it is intentional. There are people. There are smear campaigns. Yeah, like Tasha and Cardi B, Tasha K and Ta- Cardi B. Yeah. Oh, I, I meant like the soul that O'Brien coming for me every now. And oh. <laughs> but yes, yes, most people are more familiar with you know Cardi B's beef than Brianna G's beef. I get it. Okay, all right. Put me in my place. Okay, humble me. I get it. Kevin Samuels. <laughs> all right. So like ta- Cardi B sued on one, right? So I think. I think there is, there has to be, there has to be recourse for the person who feels like, like people can just lie on them 
because Look, of free speech like but it, the, but it, the it, law it, there must be a recourse i'm i'm completely here for the idea that johnny depp sues amber heard for saying johnny depp beat me but that's not what happened and i see people in the comments like but this and that and she was wrong and 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 but but the, this is the, a court of law and people yeah. are making choices to bring a certain kind of claim and you have to yes. defend the claim you brought not the magical claim that you think exists in the moral universe the claim yeah. was not brought based on Amber Heard saying Johnny Depp beat me. And I am very concerned about the implications of reading into a much softer, more vague statement about being in an abusive relationship. Because while I, like, I'm, yeah, I'm impressed with it. Well, I might say casually, I dated someone who was, you know, abu I wouldn't, I would take care. I wouldn't ever name details and be specific about somebody in the public sphere because I don't actually, as much as I might not like them, I'm not trying to get anybody hurt or have lose right. their career or any of that. Cause I know that my views are also subjective. I also know that I'm not a perfect person in these relationships either. And I'm not trying to open that door. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So all of those things are what keeps yeah. people acting right and not spilling everybody's tea all over the place, not mm -hmm. suing people for saying the tamp down casual version of what they, so you're telling I mean, not only can I not name names about who is Rami in my past, which I don't even want to do, I can't even allude to the fact that I have been in a relationship that was less than ideal, that toxic, God forbid, abusive. I can't yeah, even allude to yeah. having been in an abusive relationship in my life. I feel, like, I feel like it. I feel like it. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I feel okay, like th this. You you cannot. In these times, or in the times that the that thing that article came out, mm -hmm. right? You, if you, and I'm coming from the, I'm I'm coming from the position that Johnny Depp does not believe he's an abuser, or that he sexually abused his ex. Right? I'm coming from that position. If you say at the time that she said that this man abused me sexually. Mm -hmm. right at the time of the height of cancellation of all these men mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and then come out as an aclu um ambassador so all of this me too stuff is wrapped up in it mm -hmm. and then he subsequently loses roles and is cancelled and mm -hmm. has all these things like it's it's within that context so right. you can, but if she, you can say it, but it's, it's definitely going to have okay, an impact. Okay, but that's not that how the law works. I'm sorry. That sometimes there are bad consequences in life and we can talk about how the Me Too movement should have been different and better and such. But you are all telling me that at some point we all, we all knew that Amber Heard meant physical abuse in Johnny Depp because at some point she said physical abuse in Johnny Depp, correct? She said at some point she said... Johnny Depp hit me and got a temporary restraining order out on him, correct? And, and sexually violated me, yes. Correct. And sexually violated me, okay. He should no, she have said sued her. I didn't say that before in detail. Okay. He hmm. should have sued her over those statements. I want everyone to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there is not a legitimate cause for Johnny Depp to sue, sue over defamation. What I am yeah. saying that the claims that were brought in this case seems to me such a low bar. The statements were so generic in terms of abuse and the bar is so low for what abuse is that Amber Heard can obviously demonstrate that she was quote unquote abused, even if she was much more the abuser. And by the way, yeah, this goes I, both I ways. I don't even consider whether or not she was a, an abuser in, in, in terms of 
whether or not he's allowed to defame. I don't think, I don't think that 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 should, as much as it has played a role in in him telling his truth or whatever that she was an abuser. I don't I don't consider that when I consider whether or not he should have brought action against her. If he felt that at the time, in the Washington Post, that that had a bigger impact on his career than when she wound up on TMZ for filing the charge or whatever. I mean, I understand why he would use that. that, that yeah, but, um, but that's, that's, not, that's not material. If he lost a role in 2020 around the time of the article, mm-hmm. and everyone's saying, well, it's because the article, everyone understood it to mean what it meant because of something that yeah. she said in 2018, you can still sue for losing the job in 2020 over the thing she said in 2018. That doesn't preclude you from adding all of that to the trial. Okay. okay. Suing on all of that. But he did it. Okay. And guys, like, sometimes lawyers mess up and sometimes there's bad cases and you get to try again. He could bring suit about those other claims right now if he wanted to. And let's, let's flip this around for a second. Johnny Depp also had to pay Amber Heard because of libelous statements about that. This one, this one night where they got the facts wrong about, did she call the cops twice and all of this stuff? Okay. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a statement made by legal counsel that should have been more careful anyway. Correct. But in a world yeah. where there's there's a world where let's say Johnny Depp is talking and saying, you know, she lied about what happened this night. Yeah. And he gets the fact wrong about whether she called the cops once or twice. Yep. You know, sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes yeah. you just you just get, you don't understand what happened and you make mistakes because your your subjective understanding of what happened was what happened. Yeah. And it's just a little wild to me. Like no one's disputing that Amber Heard is mentally ill. Nobody's you know, suffers from some mental illness. No one's arguing that Johnny Depp doesn't have a, a substance abuse problem. A lot is going on here that is affecting people's subjective understandings of what happened in these moments. Mm. And to me, right. it's just yeah. extremely dangerous. There are objective statements Amber Heard made that she should be responsible for. Johnny Depp hit me. Okay. Apparently that happened in 2018, those statements and all that. But right. what we're talking about here is a person so you, talking so about you have a, a problem with the him suing over the article. Yes, so this case. I'm I'm interested in this legal case. Okay. That's all we should be talking about. Right. That no, everyone's well, I, caught I, up in all this other drama and Amber Heard's shitty and all of that. Like, I can see <laughs> all of that. I don't care if Amber Heard is shitty. I care about the implications of this case law are. Because right. your first question was to the extent that this has any implications beyond this that anyone should care about. It's because of the legal standard that is now on the books because of this outcome. So had he sued her for filing the um, the restraining order, wouldn't that have been worse? First of all, strategically, well, it, look, what it seems like to me, and again, I haven't been following this closely, but mm-hmm. it seems to me like he maybe was like, me too is too hot. I don't want to, I'm just going to hope this goes away. I'm not trying to escalate by suing her back because this is going to make me look bad maybe. in the middle of the height of me too. And now that yep. me too has cooled off and it has switched and now that he's a champion of the right wing, because that's where our fucking country is, like... <laughs> You know, he feels like, oh, I can do this, and I'm not going to have all the social opprobrium that I had before. Now, that's Johnny Depp making a very reasonable strategic choice about when he brings suit. But he also has to deal with the consequences of that. You don't get to cherry pick the time and then want to cherry and hope that everybody – this is like like giving Whoopi Goldberg an Oscar for Jumping Jack Flash because you effed up and didn't give her the Oscar for the color purple. Okay, and you are not going to get me this as much as I believe that Whoopi Goldberg should have gotten an Oscar for her tremendous performance and what I believe is the best movie of all time. 
Right. You're not going to get here, me to sit here and say she deserved an Oscar for Jumping Jack Flash. I'm not going to do it. I I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. But I I would. I will, I will, um, I agree with you and I see, <laughs> I see the merits of your point of saying that it was mild suggestions and implications. And so, but I still feel if someone feels that somebody is lying on them mm-hmm. as mild and as, and what's funny is that she had doctor, I mean, doctors, lawyers look over it and, and remove his name because mm-hmm, she wanted to mm-hmm. put it in there. All the things. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she was really trying to avoid. Being sued. Yes. Right. So she knew that what she was doing and had the potential to be defamatory. This article. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? So she knew mm-hmm. that this article had the potential to be defamatory and she was trying mm-hmm. to take steps to make sure that it was an ACLU, especially when she was trying to make steps <laughs> that it mm-hmm. was not defamatory. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for her, mm-hmm. right? Johnny still found it defamatory because he, it was in the Washington Post, which is and a big, it's not as not, opposed to some not... kind of tabloid. That's not the standard. The standard isn't like, oh, it's super embarrassing because it's a big paper. You can paint no, something in the back pages. No, no, of... no, no, no. He's, he thought it was untrue. He well, no, I understand, but the, the size of the paper is not what's material material here. Well, it came, it came up in the trial. Because it's why he got saying... in his feelings. Like, and I get that. <laughs> like, I get that. Like, that's super embarrassing. I would be pissed no, also. But he's also saying that because it was the Washington Post, it had a bigger mm. impact on the decision yeah correct so it there must be a way i don't know what is the way the recourse but there must be a way for people who feel that they are being lied on yeah you can sue but yeah. this wasn't the this wasn't the claim for him. Biden is saying that the statute of limitations for defamation is two years, so he couldn't have sued for 2018 you know what oh, okay. he should have figured that out before 2020 I'm well, sorry. He like lose, he didn't lose wait, pirates. Look, he didn't I'm lose sorry. 25 mil. Oh, okay. <laughs> <At that time. laughs> okay. Look, you're you're telling me that this is all really about what people know because it was in the ether from 2018, but he didn't start to have financial consequences of it from 2020 till 2020. According to what the jury heard. Like, according to what the jury heard. This is this he is ridiculous. Getting rules up until okay. that point. This is this is ridiculous. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> also, if he wants to take, if he wants to have a public. This debate he can go on Robin Roberts and spill his heart out and play yeah. his tapes. This all could have happened outside of a courtroom. He could have taken his little tapes, God right. bless him with the tapes, <laughs> and gone on Oprah or or Gail or yeah. Keith Oberman for all I care and made but, the but, same case and vindicated himself in the exact same way. Statutes and limitations or not. I don't think that would have been the vindication. The way the same way that the blue check is dismissing all the internet talk and chatter about it. Well, no. It's the a reason, way that they cannot, I, they cannot dismiss a jury I, verdict. Well, first of all, I'm 100% dismissing this jury verdict because it seems silly to <laughs> like, I, I, it, it seems silly. This has nothing to do with the underlying merits. It has to do with this case. I'm sorry. It just seems obviously silly to me. But again, I'll have a legal expert on and we'll see if I still feel that way after. But I listened to someone suggested listening to this woman um, What's her name? I'm going to pull it up. Uh, Emily Baker. I listened to her thing, and she also th- was very surprised by this outcome. Why are you guys acting like I'm brand she new? Was, she was surprised about 
that he won all the counts. She thought yes, he would have won. Because it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I, I will give you, I will give you, I will give you she that. Said, she said, I can see how they got there. I can also see how they got there, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. It, it, I yeah. would not have, this is not the outcome that I think was directed by the facts because, not because Amber's a nice person or Johnny Depp's a monster or anything like that. Because the bar is so low for what Amber had to prove that yeah. to me, she obviously proved it. Like she could show up and show one text of someone calling her a cunt and be like, yeah, this was abusive. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. That's fine. Yeah. And I, I really wish I shouldn't say wish because I, I have no dog in the fight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I accept the jury verdict simply because I felt like they went wrong by not sticking to the, to the wide to the wide definition of abuse by narrowing and overselling her case. Yeah, for sure. It, it, I get, it, 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 it I, I get that much. that happened. I get that that happened. Yeah. And that's like the lawyers messed up. And I, that's why I understand how they got there. However, yeah. Maggie Cobbler, JD in the chat says that like the, the, that the, they proved the jury it was a factual matter that Depp was sufficiently identified in the article. The statements were false. I'm sorry. The statements which statement? All she has to show is that I was in a domestically abusive situation. But you cannot tell me what statement. The statements being false are immaterial. She could say, I think Santa Claus is real. I was born from a donkey. She can say everything <laughs> in the world. It doesn't matter that she's an unmitigated liar all over the place. When there was hard, concrete evidence in the form of text messages from Johnny Depp to old dude from the Marvel movies. <laughs> that he was like not the most gentlemanly of person a hundred people a hundred percent of the time that's right. all and it's not about a credibility determination at that point there's like evidence i, I i'm sorry like and, and i get that those texts weren't from the heat and thick of the matter and i don't want didn't watch the trial so i don't know all of the bits of evidence i presume there was something at some point that happened that was corroborated during the course of their relationship because how could there not be as messy as it was there were so ma- there were so many that were not that were not just not corroborated that were contradicted that I felt so sorry for that jury who was anybody on that jury who was still trying to believe her it would be hard because it would be like wh- which do I believe because you you you'd certainly lying on the stand right now because two seconds later you're being contradicted I don't, your witness is contradicting you I don't so have to I believe think- her on anything except for seeing some text messages and any other little glimmer. Maybe they didn't think that was abuse. Maybe they did not think that was abuse. That's that's what exactly the whole problem is that is here. Because everybody is going to say exactly what she said. Everybody can say exactly what she said. Everyone who's ever been in a relationship can say exactly what Amber Heard said. Not what you think this is about from two years ago, but what she literally said and was sued over is a very common statement to make. And now we've decided that if you make a statement like that and you can't prove that your partner actually walloped you, if you don't have the pictures of the bruises taken with the timestamp camera that you immediately emailed to a girlfriend, then you can be sued for your reputational damage for saying a true thing from your, in your opinion that you were in an abusive relationship. That is where we are. That's not where we are. That is literally where we are. 
if you say that you were dragged across broken glass, no, that's not the accusation. Come with pictures, no, that's it. no, that, <laughs> that, like I, I, I hear what all you guys are no saying, cuts. but I really need you guys to think of this legally. Like that is an emotional no, response. No, yeah, I hear you. That is not a legal response. I am, I am looking. <laughs> I'm looking at the questions that the jury had to answer, the three questions or whatever, uh-huh. how many other questions they had to answer. And at uh-huh. the very least, for the statement about the headline, that was a goner. That she she lost that from the time they went back to deliberation, that was a goner. If you guys say so, like I I, I accept that. When I read the article, I yeah. am very aware that the first paragraph, first six sentences or so, are about sexual violence she experienced before yeah. she met Johnny Depp. No, and no, no, no. No, yeah, very much so. The beginning of the article is, I experienced, I had experienced a sexual, physical sexual violence before the time I had gotten to college, is what she writes. Mm. Well, then- and then she uses very different language. She pivots to the, I became the spokesperson for domestic abuse language yeah. when she talks about two years ago aka johnny depp right yeah well then like you cannot like it's, that you can think it's it not ethical maybe maybe it should not have been face the culture's wrath after the sexual violence headline i think I mean, those she, two things being together maybe maybe that's sloppy and again that yeah. sucks for her because she probably didn't write that headline no she didn't but she certainly republished it yeah she republished <laughs> right. it. So that, that sucks for her but like it does all, one all three counts and yeah, two, I would, idea, I'm I, sorry. I, I would. I definitely, if I was on a jury, you couldn't get all three counts. And also, one, for sure. If we want to talk jury nullification, I have some ethical issues with the idea of holding someone responsible for a headline that some editor wrote. I gotta say, as someone who Come writes on. these, like I remember there was this moment at the at the intercept where someone got in really big trouble for misrepresenting an article from because of what it, what one of the editors did, and it was really shitty. Like the editor, mm-hmm. it was like. I don't want to name names, but like the editor felt really bad, but like they got this yeah. writer in a huge, like fucking yeah. pile of shit because the article was completely accurate, but it was a very sensitive subject. And the headline was just too yeah. cute by half. And that yeah. happens. Like, I'm just telling you no. that that happens. And it really no, I sucks. I, I, I've worked in papers. So okay. I've written and seen editors do some things to my headline. <laughs> so I'm like, what did they read what I wrote? Yeah. So I've been there. So I understand. And I I feel for her, but the fact that she reposted it and then put I published this today. Yeah, that was you, you can't you was, can't know you can't know say well I didn't write it. But yeah, I it really, like, really, really don't want to talk about Amber Heard. Your initial question was, do I think yes, there are implications yes, for let's this? Go back. And the reality of the situation is as I've explained before, mm-hmm. it's not about any of that. This this yes. the whole this the standard at play here is if you are someone who has been in an abusive relationship, are you going to be silenced now? Are you going to hesitate before saying, talking truthfully about what your experience was because mm-hmm. someone else's subjective reality of the thing differs from your own and you can't prove a level of violence that they think constitutes abuse? Or they, they say that you intentionally misused the word abuse because it was vague and the implications were that you were a lot worse than you were and right. that's ruined you professionally and all of this. So this you, is the morass so that's if, been opened you think up. If people who, you think if people watching this trial mm-hmm. who do you think the response is going to be well I cannot I cannot come out and speak versus okay well that person lied I'm not lying I could speak. No. I, I'm you telling you right so. now yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry 
Amber Heard was obviously in a domestic abusive situation. Like, obviously. Partly because she was the abuser. <laughs> and partly because there were obviously terrible people going at it a lot. I, I, would, I don't know. What, I what, what do I have to say? That she was a thousand times more culpable? Ten thousand? A million times more culpable? Why is everyone so invested in the idea of really digging their heels into the idea? Well, we just got to make sure we punish Amber Heard. No! This no. is literally not a trial about punishing Amber Heard. No, <laughs> if you want to drag her through the streets, do that on your own time. This is not what this trial is about. I, I don't think she should be she should be punished. Well, she's that. punished. She's got ten she, million she dollars of punishment. This is a punitive. I mean, she got punitive yeah. damages and she's punished. Yeah. She is. I I don't think she should be punished, but I I don't know what the recourse is if you think someone has lied on you. Well, what am I supposed to do? Sue everybody in the comment section? No, you can't. You can't. No, <laughs> no, I I literally can. I literally can actually. No, well, okay. And then every day, I'm sorry. Every day, all of us wake up. Get called everything but the child of God and move on with our days. Jesse yeah, Single, but, I, I know people are going to feel some way about this. Jesse Single has talked a lot about this. That you know, you don't have to like what he writes about or agree with his opinions, but people have definitely said things about Jesse Single that are demonstrably untrue. People have accused him of stalking people and wanting to secretly have sex with all these women that he DMs for articles and having a trans right. fetish. And all these. Things. Look, I mean, maybe he does have a little bit of substance when talking about trans issues, but but like he has been accused of things that have lost lucrative journalism jobs and is largely a pariah and you can think that's all deserved and that's fine but the reality he has a very strong case for defamation against some of these people and he has talked about the decision making and how he didn't want to get dragged into the morass of spending his life fighting these legal claims when it's just going to further ruin his reputation and he just let it go everyone else is letting it go but johnny depp who i'm supposed to believe even though I think maybe he was wrong here, is the most beleaguered victim in the world because he didn't get another no. pile of millions of dollars for making <laughs> another movie. I'm sorry. I cannot bring myself to care about this. <laughs> I can't. I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think we have to jump to, 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 the, to say that he's the most beleaguered. But I'm saying that's the, the way that she has a right, the First Amendment right, to say non-defamatory things. He has a right sue if everybody moving on everybody could move on that's their business he is suing okay so he should have sued he has that right he can sue and the court should have said no defamation and then we could all move on as well maybe no one's saying that he doesn't have the right to sue but him winning is the thing that changes the balance of power here and i think i have to reckon with that anybody who saw that trial would did you would understand why did you read but that is not i, I really need you no, guys talk, all like i don't know if you have to go to law school or what you guys have really all got to stop saying things like that well if you watch the trial literally no literally no, no. guys no. No, no no it's not, not about that no 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 i promise you i could watch no 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 i i could watch I could watch her get up from the stand and literally stab Johnny Depp in the heart and murder him in the courtroom and it would not change my opinion because that is not what is being litigated here. And I need you guys to train your brain to focus on the narrow point at issue. You don't get to litigate all this other stuff that is just on your mind and in the air. I am not saying any fact acts by Amber (laughs) justify, I think, None of the bad acts from Amber could have been, except the lies. I think all the all the shit, all the everything else could have been left out. Even the evidence of her abuse could have been left out. Fayla, do you think that at any point, how long were they married? 
Four. Yes. Do you think at any point oh, yes, in four years, year. do you think at any uh-huh. point in their four-year contingent marriage, Johnny Depp at any point did anything that you would characterize as abusive toward Amber Heard? Yes, I then do. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's over. That's it. That's it. Done. Quick, Quickest deliberation in the history of the court. No, but what I'm saying is I can understand how people might not have that view based on what yeah, they saw. I can understand it too, and they're wrong. End of story. I understand it, but it's not the law. <laughs> if they Stealings. don't find her credible, they can't, they can't not believe her? That's not in the law? No, I can be the biggest liar on the planet, but if I stand here and say the sky is blue, point at the sky, it is blue, that if is you what you the sky and it's red. nation on. If you, if you say the sky is blue, you no, point at the was, sky and it no. is red. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this because I really need to be in bed an hour ago, but there is, <laughs> there is there, there's literal evidence. I don't know how many ways to say this. There is concrete evidence that isn't based on Amber Heard's opinion that was adduced during trial. That's the reality. Whether you want to talk about the text messages or, or some of her friend's testimony or whatever else was said, you know, you know, I've, I heard someone say that her friend sounded legitimately concerned about the police call that night, that she was in danger and all of that. Whatever yeah. else happened during trial, there was something other than the words that came out of Amber Heard's mouth that substantiate evidence. Ev- exhibits were introduced into trial. I didn't watch it. If I did, I tell you, people like watch the trial. I promise you if I watched the trial, it would be destroying you right now in this argument. It would not be helping you that I watched the trial. <laughs> okay. Because then I would be specifically able to point to all of the evidence that was put forward, that it was introduced, mm-hmm. that shows that outside of Amber's subjective words, because she's a lying liar, there is yeah. evidence that at some point in four years, Johnny Depp was a prick. And that's all you need to know. Yeah. That I- is a, such a low bar. I agree with you. If they had kept it at at the Y definition, the uh-huh. outcome would have been different. I I, I agree with you. Okay. They kept it at the Y definition. So I, I completely accept that there's lawyer misconduct that they shouldn't have tried to nail down this uh, physical stuff. All of that, I agree. I agree. Yes. I agree. But that is yes. not the issue. The issue is what happens the next time a woman yeah. is thinking of saying giving a testimonial, talking at an abuse victims meetup, something like that, about yeah. what she went through with her ex. I, I don't Are think men going to be it. camping out at, like, abused, abused women anonymous in the I wings of the room it. saying, oh, I'm no, I don't want Tisha to say this thing about me. Say, let it no. come out your mouth, Tisha, and I'm a Sue. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Men are not right. going to do that. Okay, well, here's <laughs> hoping. Here's hoping because – I think that is a legitimate claim. And I also do want to say that some of the hashtag blue checks are mad because people are saying some really vile things. And I don't yes. care what Amber Heard said or did, posting pictures of casting couches and saying that the only way she's going to get a role is if she spreads her legs is fucked up. Yeah. And nobody on the left should be defending anything like that. And no. frankly, the fact that that is out there in the ether makes me want to defend Amber Heard, who seems like a very un- like unstable person. And I hope she gets the help that she needs. And I hope that Johnny Depp gets the help that he needs because he's Same. no cakewalk either. Okay? Same. <laughs> Thanks for the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. This was a rip-roaring way. I feel like I don't have to go to the gym anymore because I'm sweating bullets and my heart rate is all up. Fayola, you got me my heart rate. I'm like, I can't even go to sleep. Let me go ahead and pack tonight, maybe, because now I'm, I, I'm more awake than I bet I got like three hours of sleep last night because I was up reading that goddamn Raider that everybody's just going to be mad at me about anyway. And now I have to wake up and go to this flight at nine o'clock. But I feel like I appreciate you. I appreciate all of you. This has been a really fun talk. I have enjoyed this a great deal. I pulled up a song to play early as soon as I um, started this uh, chat because I'm like, I'm going to be really smooth. 
with this. Uh, and of course, I close the window. So now yeah. I'm I'm eating up time while I find the video again. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Um, I want to remind everybody, I know that we talked about this last time and that um, the clipping tool might not be working. So I'm sorry if you can't, you literally cannot clip. I don't want to blame you for that. If you have been trying to clip and haven't been able to clip, but if you can clip, if one of the call-in people is in the chat, um, please, we want that functionality back because it made it a really nice way to share the clip with other people. We want that. Um, Bidester says she didn't. Okay. Bidester, look, maybe we'll do a whole other episode. Let's maybe do a video live stream at some point le- next week if I get an expert and you guys can call in again and speak to me your truth. Because I'm I'm open to, like, if there's really no facts, then there's no facts. But um, <laughs> I appreciate all of you. This has been great. I, like, look, there were some really amazing conversations tonight. I want to say here's to the men. Oh, that would have been a good song to go out on. Let's hear it for the boys. All right. I'll remember that for next time. But this is what we're doing tonight. Thank you all. Get some sleep. You guys are great. I appreciate you. Keep the faith.